0: we mm-hmm.
1: Chris and welcome to X-Lapsed episode 18. So who's ready to uh, wrap up our DOX Wave One number ones? Uh, I know I am. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Fallen Angels number one. Uh, you might call it Fallen Angels Volume Two number one if you remember that uh, really boring miniseries from the 80s. Uh, this had a uh, January 2020 cover date. Story is called Bushido. Written by Brian Hill, with art by Simon Kudransky. Colors, Frank D'Armada. Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Robinson White, Cebulski. $4.99 cover price. And it went on sale November 13th, 2019. You know, Fallen Angels was kind of the, uh, you know, the huh? <laughs> you know, when I saw that uh, in the sh- in the shop there, I... It just felt like a very weird choice for a uh, for a launch book for this line. I was expecting, I was pretty much expecting everything to be like a, I don't know, like a legacy X book sort of thing where maybe we'd get an X Factor, you know, or maybe we'd get a Generation X, or maybe we'd get a Wolverine Solo, but Fallen Angels kind of just came out of nowhere, um, which both, you know, Inspired a little bit of trepidation, but at the same time a little bit of excitement because I mean, what in the world could they be doing with this book, right? So uh, let's find out. Let's uh, let's find out together. Here we open, and we see a young girl on a train, and we get some sort of kind of confusing narrative captions about Quan'an, which uh, caused me to assume that maybe this was a flashback to Quan'an's childhood. It is not. Now this young girl pops some sort of digital diode doohickey onto her dome and we can also see that she has a butterfly either tattooed or adhered around the nape of her neck. The girl is suddenly overcome with strength. She's able to tear a standrail in half. With it, she beats many of the other passengers, working her way toward the control room. Once there, she slams the conductor's head into the control panel. She grabs what I can assume is the emergency brake. I've never driven or operated a train before, but I'm guessing it was probably a brake. Uh, She says the word apoth, And then the whole thing gets derailed Now it's worth noting that her eyes started bleeding black after the doohickey was in place And by the end of the scene her eyes were fully just coal black and uh, still bleeding Now before we get into this, let's meet our cast So we have Psylocke, so I guess um, in Excalibur I question whether or not Quanon would be going by Psylocke And it looks like she is We've also got Magneto, Mister Sinister, Cable, the young Cable, and X twenty three. Also, the other one, Captain Britain, Betsy Braddock, the former Psylocke. She's a she'll show up for like a panel and a half, but we will get there. Now we're gonna find out that this issue is chronologically last out of all the other, you know, Dawn of X number one. So we got Betsy already becoming Captain Britain. That's already happened, and you know from. Some of the contradictory Dawn of X reading order lists that I saw um, Like the first three or four issues of Excalibur were all clumped together Like you should read it all at once and then go on to the next book So her whole first adventure as Captain Britain uh, Very likely already happened by the time this book hits But uh, we're just reading them as they come out Uh, From here, a double page spread of creds and then back to comics We're on Krakoa and we see Psylocke, Quanon, meditating She's being all tranquil and very, very purple. Uh, suddenly, her mind is, becomes preoccupied by a presence of darkness warning of a tetragrammaton called Apoth. Now, she's told to stop Apoth, and she's reminded that Apoth has already taken something from her, and this is uh, more than enough to shock her out of her happy place. And next we see her, she's in the House of M, chatting up Magneto in an attempt to get permission to leave the island. You see, Krakoa has been on lockdown since Charles Xavier's death at the end of X-Force No. 1. So, uh... A, way to go, X editors actually putting a footnote in there referring to X-Force No. 1. Thumbs up to you. And second, I guess Charles is actually dead. At least for now. Uh, now, I really wasn't expecting to find anything else out about the assassination or the assassination attempt until X-Force No. 2. Uh, I really... I love that there's a feeling of co- continuity between these books. I was afraid that these were all going to kind of go their own way, with maybe just the main X-Men book is sort of a sort of a, like a meeting place for all the stories, like where we touch on everything. But it looks like uh, it looks like we are actually you know reading a family of books, and that's uh, I like that. I like that. So anyway, back to the story. Psylocke pleads her case until Magneto tells her officially that she can't leave. Though we suggest that maybe if she goes over to talk to Mr. Sinister, he might be able to at least hear her out. Now, being kind of thick, she asked Magneto why he gave her a rule and then told her how to break it. And Magneto, I mean, you could... you could almost see him, like, slump his shoulders and say, so he's like, you know, you're not getting it. <laughs> but, like... And he all but, like, repeatedly winks at her to get her to understand. And she finally gets it. And she thanks him. And he tells her, don't thank me because I didn't do anything. And, uh... He goes on to say that sometimes, especially while he's in mourning, he might just forget on-the-record conversations he's had. And this reminds me a lot of like when you try to have like a, like a sort of sly conversation with someone and they just don't get it. Uh, it was pretty painful how Magneto had to basically spell it all out. Uh, very well written, though. I, I did enjoy reading it, but it was you could feel Magneto's frustration. It's like, ugh. <sighs> Next stop, Bar Sinister. And here, Psylocke bleeds her case to the mista who is depicted as a little bit less fabulous here, and more like the Sinister of old. Sinister hears her out, and he confirms uh, that she's looking for him to break the laws of paradise. Like, he actually wants her to say it. Uh, You know, she's all, you break the laws of nature all the time, so what's a big deal? Sinister laughs and says there are no, you know, laws of nature. Uh, They talk about killing, and Sinister asks how she would have gone about killing Betsy Braddock for inhabiting her body for all those years and she replies that she would do it the same way she'd kill anybody, quickly. Sinister tries to keep the conversation going, but Psylocke just wants off the island. Finally, he relents and says she can go, but not alone. Psylocke assures him that nobody on Krakoa trusts her, so enlisting aid is going to be a kind of a difficult task. Sinister suggests she find other people who want to uh, destroy stuff. From here, we hop to Flashback Land, where in Japan... And it looks like Quanon is probably maybe like a preteen at this point. She's still got kind of like little baby fat cheeks, you know. Uh, she's practicing her swordsmanship up on a cliff while a cloaked weirdo talks to her about being an ugly, useless caterpillar at present, but one day she'll become a beautiful butterfly. We come back to now, and we're back on Krakoa at Carousel. Uh, now, this is just a area of the island where everyone's partying. There's a big bonfire, a bunch of mutants dancing. Off to the side, we see young Cable and X-23. Cable asks if Laura dances, to which they get into this weird flirtatious conversation. Here, they decide, rather than dance, they ought to just fight. Laura quickly pins little Nate and uh, proclaims herself the winner. They talk about how the island is making everyone feel too safe, which we've heard somewhere before. Uh, worth remembering, though, uh, this story actually happens after that Wetworks raid in F- X-Force No. 1, so you know, safety might not be the overwhelming feeling in the air right now, right? I mean, they just had a bunch of themselves you know, killed <laughs> in cold blood on the beach, so I don't know. Psylocke approaches Nate and Laura and asks them to accompany her home. They ask why, and Psylocke points out that they're the only ones not dancing. Cable and X-23 think about it, and upon realizing that this Psylocke isn't safe, they decide to go and see what she's all about. Leaving the bonfire area, Psylocke passed by Captain Britain, Betsy, who asks if they might have a minute to talk. Psylocke tells her that that is not necessary, and continues to walk on by. We go back to Quinan's place, and the trio have tea and begin to talk about why they've been asked here. Before getting too far, however, X-23 asks to speak with Psylocke alone. Once outside, she says, I don't care what it is, I'll go with you, but Cable needs to stay behind. She says that Nate needs and deserves Krakoa, while she, X-23, needs a life without being stuck in Logan's shadow. To which I say, yeah, good luck with that, my derivative friend. Uh, Maybe try not using claws, and also maybe don't go by the name Wolverine sometimes? I don't know. Uh, From here, we jump all the way to Tokyo, Gwinnon and Laura have been given an audience with a black marketeer named Makoto. And she's got video footage of the train derailment from the opening few pages. She also states here that Apoth is nothing more than a rumor. A boogeyman made up of body mods and digital narcotics that has been made up. Uh, Now, the digital doohickey the kid is in the beginning of war is something called overclock. Now, Makoto says if there is an Apoth, and Apoth is responsible for Overclock, well then, Apoth is going to make millions upon millions of dollars. We watch the video, and upon seeing the kid's butterfly marking, Psylocke heads back into Flashback Land. Here, we see Quanan just after giving birth to a baby girl. Now, to teach her that love is weakness, her keepers take the child from her and tell her that they will mark her with a butterfly. Back in the present, Psylocke is, uh, well, she's going nuts. She's psychic-blading Makoto while X-23 holds off the goons with her claws. Uh, we finally are able to get some confirmation that there is an Apoth, though Makoto does not want to give any more information lest she be killed. Well, if you're Psylocke, that's not much of a problem, because she can just yoink that info out of the head anyway with her, you know, with her blades. Laura wants to know what's going on, and so Psylocke touches her, and this somehow shares her thoughts. And now, X-23 knows everything that we do. You know, Quanon had a daughter, Butterfly Branding, yada yada yada. We get a couple of pages of info, uh, you know, of the info variety regarding Overclock. And uh, tell you what, designer drugs are almost always a complete bore to me. I feel like every third X-Men story arc since the turn of the century has had something to do with a designer drug. Whether it makes you a mutant, for, uh, gives you mutant powers, or takes powers away, it's always just... I don't know. It bores me. Um, I'm not looking forward to doing more of it here. Hopefully there's more to this than that. Uh, Psylocke and X-23 follow their lead, and they arrive at a barn somewhere outside of Tokyo. Psylocke warns that she doesn't want to leave anyone alive inside. Um, Now, X-23 understands this. Inside, however, they don't find Apoth. Well, not exactly, anyway. Instead, they find a bunch of black-eyed children. Psylocke instructs X-23 not to hurt them. They, the children, suddenly start dropping to the ground, dead. One remains, however, and has a warning. Now, you see, Apoth is speaking through this last child, and he tells Psylocke to return to her island. He even suggests that, with the mutants all in exile, the rest of the world might actually evolve. And then the kid dies. Another brief flashback shows Quan'an slicing the wing off a butterfly, which I'm guessing is supposed to be poignant. We rejoin her back at Bar Sinister. She wants to put together a team to track down a poth. Now, she makes a deal with Sinister. Remember, Sinister is on the Quiet Council, and if he can keep this quiet from the Council, she'll give him a poth to study or dissect or whatever the hell Sinister might do with a body. He'll have free reign. And once he's done with uh, with a poth, quanan will, you know, to take care of it. Uh, we wrap up with the official drafting of X-23 and Cable into the ranks of our unnamed team. She asks them to find others they can trust, so it looks like we're going to wind up with more than just our uh, trio of outsiders here. And that is that. And that is also all six Wave 1 Number 1s from Dawn of X. So, talking time, talking time. I. Uh, when did Quanon come back? Has uh, she been, like, puttering around the X-Universe for a bit, or is she just, a, like, a resurrectee? Um, last I recall, though, it has been a while. She died of the legacy virus back in the long ago. And I tell you what, I remember being so confused during that story arc where she came back in Betsy's British body, uh, probably because whichever Q-Bert was drawing those issues made so little differentiation but between the purple-haired women, you know, Quanon, revanche or whatever. Uh, she just had poofier hair. I mean, one of them didn't look especially Asian One of them didn't look especially un-Asian Also, at the time, I knew nothing about Betsy ever being, you know, uh, a Brit to begin with I knew she was related to Captain Britain But I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about a body swap So, I, uh, (laughs) that was very confusing And it wasn't, uh, it was confusing and not interesting Which is, you know, the worst of both worlds there I was previously tipped off that I'll need to check out, like, the, the Wolverines weekly series, the post-Death of Wolverine thing, to get some more insight on Psylocke, the Betsy version. Which seems a rather daunting task, but I might keep my eyes peeled for that in the cheapo bins to see what I can find. Now, is this the first time we're learning that Quinan had a child? I think that's an interesting story beat. Um, I guess we might be able to assume, then, that the kid from the beginning was her daughter? Or are all these black-eyed children tagged with Nate butterflies? I I don't know. I'm going to assume, I think, that it was her daughter. So how about this issue? I will say it was far better than I expected it to be. It was also better than the uh, the first series that was called Fallen Angels, but that's not exactly a high bar. Uh, Just going by the cover, this was not a team I thought I'd have any interest in. Uh, Then, looking at the first few pages, I was almost positive this was going to be a slog. It wasn't, though. This was not a slog. It was, a, uh, perhaps a little too satisfied with itself in places, but overall, I enjoyed it. Um, it was probably a little too edgy and precious in places. Uh, I could do without the constant butterfly mentions, but, I mean, what are you gonna do, right? Uh, the art here, I gotta say, is very, very nice. I think Kudransky is a great fit for a story like this. Uh, I probably ought sh- to mention the coloring, which was some beautiful stuff as well, um... Yeah, this is uh well, I mean it's not, you know, Pepe Larraz doing uh, House of X, it's it's still very, very good stuff here. And Kudransky, I, I think he's he's great for this sort of uh the sort of a story. The story, uh, while it was pretty dark and definitely felt like uh, like an outsider among the rest of the Dawn of X books, it kinda of felt like almost like a vertical light take on the X Men. Or at least some of the X Men. Uh, The best parts of this were, again, the scenes of familiar characters interacting, uh, even if those characters aren't 100% completely familiar to me. I really enjoyed the scenes with Magneto and Sinister. I was a bit weirded out by the odd flirtation between X-23 and Cable, especially when we consider that X-23 was once in a relationship with young Cyclops, and now young Cable. It's just weird. Maybe she has a type. What can I I say? Uh, Now, I appreciated the revelations here as it pertained to the other Dawn of X books. You know, we... You know, Betsy's already Captain Britain. Professor X's death is... I don't want to say confirmed, <laughs> but... for, you know, for all, all intents and purposes, he's dead right now. This actually gives us, or, or me, a feeling that we have some cohesion, and things that happen actually matter. You know, just like last episode when the Marauder showed up on X-Force, uh, though, you know, nobody called bothered to call, you know, Kitty Kate or Kate Kitty or whatever. Um... I do think it's a bit odd how the death of Xavier is just kind of stated. And outside of Magneto being all solemn, nobody else seems to give a rat's ass. You know, nobody else is bothered about it. They're all dancing around a bonfire without a care in the world. Uh, You know, when their island was just raided by some wildstorm rejects, and the dude who can resurrect them just had his brains brains blown out? Seems a weird time to throw a party, but I guess uh, we all mourn in our own way. I guess it's breadcrumbs, right?, uh, we're getting the impression here that things are happening and things are being built upon. So I'm very happy to see that because I was really kind of nervous when that that sort of storytelling would end full stop after uh, hoxbox, you know, I thought that we were just gonna go six separate ways here and uh, just have a little bit of cohesion here. and and this is a little bit of cohesion, but it's like, it's like the big stuff, you know? It's some big stuff being mentioned here. So I'm, I'm certainly happy to see that that continues here and that this is, you know, just one whole story that we're being told and we're, we're making our way through. Now, this series, Fallen Angels, only runs six issues, uh, unless it's just on, you know, quote-unquote, on hiatus or between seasons, or however they lampshade temporarily canceling a book nowadays without losing face. I think... Six issues of this might be a tough sell, though I'm I'm hoping to be proven wrong. If this wasn't ongoing, which, I mean, the jury is still out, I I think I I would like this far less. Um, As a chapter one of six, it was pretty solid, though if I were ranking all the Dawn of X number ones, this one would definitely be slotted at the bottom. Speaking of which, how about we rate the number ones here? Um, now this is just my ratings You know, how I enjoyed them, how I received them uh, If you agree, disagree, let me know I'd like to know how you guys rank these books How you all uh, how you all received these And which ones you liked the best And maybe which ones you hated uh, The top of the list here Flip-flopped a few times um, Sometimes when I put this list together It was Marauders in the number one spot Other times it was New Mutants On the number one spot Um I think if I, you know, gun to my head, I had to uh, I had to pick. I think I'd put Marauders at number one, New Mutants at a very, very close number two. Uh, number three, X-Men. Number four, X-Force. Number five, Excalibur. And number six would be Fallen Angels. So, that's my ratings for the Dawn of X number one. So, um, agree, disagree, let me know. Please, please, please. Now, speaking of letting me know, I got some feedback. Got a... Fair amount of feedback here today I, I'm saving some for the next episode But I, I do want to go through some of it here First, our friend Damien writes in And this is uh, regarding Episode 13, X-Men number 1 He says, yet another amazing episode Your description of how the legacy numbering works Makes me glad that I've walked away for many years Maybe more faked her death To avoid that legacy virus uh, It seems like a symptom Of a broken system at Marvel That demands repeated number ones Even if there's nothing new And yeah Hundred percent broken system. Um, Law of diminishing returns, yes, totally. But at this point, I mean, how can we even get mad at Marvel for it? They're abusing it, yes, but uh, there's no denying that these number ones get a sales bump. So, at the end of the day, it's our fault. <laughs> We're the ones coming in and and pumping up their sales and making it so number ones are like the only viable books in the books on the shelves. Um, it's kind of like. Uh, the old, uh, you know, dead cat bounce in the stock stock market. You know, you throw a dead cat across the street and it's moving, but it's still dead. I feel like that's what these number ones are. It's just the dead cat bounce of comics. Um, you know, it makes it look like things are moving in the sales, but it's, it's not. Uh, nothing sustainable anyway. Uh, back to Damien's message, he says, You responded to the issue in a similar way to me. The soap opera stuff worked better than the superhero stuff. I'm never very interested in seeing fights amongst, against armies of goons, but turning them into apes was definitely fun. The one thing you missed of, with the diagram of the Summer's house is that Jean's room is, in the, is the middle one, and she has connecting doors to both Scott and Logan. They definitely want us to know that Jean is in a relationships with both men. This is one of those niggles in my brain that implies Xavier is altering the Resurrected. I feel like the established Gene and Scott would not enter into a three-way relationship, even if it was attractive to them. They're both very sm- very small-c conservative. And this is true. This is true. I didn't take a close enough look at the actual schematic. While Wolverine listed, you know, they listed the rooms, Wolverine does list between Scott and Gene. It's actually Gene's room with, as you mentioned, connecting doors that is in the middle of the schematic. I... I I was taking them in the order that they were listed I didn't even bother to look at the actual schematic itself And you're 100% right, my friend Gene uh, is in the middle And there are doors to both fellas' rooms So yeah, definitely good eye And, and thank you for uh, pointing that out to me uh, Back to Damien, he says As for the empty room, it's probably safe to having a couple of spares If Scott keeps inviting people to stay But there was that sinister secret about more Summer's siblings Maybe one of them will claim a room I'm with you all the way about Lionel Yu. He's a great action-adventure artist, but can't really deliver the domestic stuff. Everyone's a bit stiff. I feel like Hickman is writing for a Paul Smith type, but he's been given a Jim Lee. Looking forward to Marauders, because I have a lot of love for that book. And yes, I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on Marauders. That was you know, as I just mentioned, that was my top book of the month. So that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for writing in. Thank you for the uh, the correction on the schematic. And I'm definitely looking forward to uh, to hearing what you, your thoughts on Marauders. Uh, so, uh, thank you, thank you. Next, Al Sedano. Al Sedano of the Warlock and Thanos podcast. He says, Hey Chris, I enjoyed the first two episodes. So this is, re- this is referring to episodes one and two. Uh, like you, my ex-origin goes back years. Back to Uncanny X-Men number 227. I stuck around all three titles until the Mutant Genesis era, 1991, but left even before Lee and Liefeld. Though I stuck around with David and, Str- and Strowman's X-Factor and Davis on Excalibur. I would pop in and out of the X-verse ever since. Sometimes for a few months, sometimes a few years. The last era I read was the Bendis run. I'm sorry. So at this point, I'm, pretty, I'm also pretty lost on what's been happening. But I'm trying to put that out of my head too much and treat it like I'm a new reader. So here's a few thoughts I have so far. Regarding House of X number one. Why does it look like Xavier is dancing in the beginning when the X-Men, in question, uh, are coming out of their pods? Is that a weird artistic choice? Is he that excited? Maybe he's just taking advantage of being able to walk, since who knows how soon they'll take that away again. I didn't even realize that. I didn't even notice the uh, <laughs> the flir- the flourish that Xavier was, uh, was showing here. Uh, it's like you can almost picture... Like a song from a Disney movie playing with him, you know, frolicking and, and holding his hands up and maybe like a uh, maybe like a bird landing on his finger or something there. Um, back to uh, back to Al's mail here he says, Powers of X1. I remember to take more notes on this one. I do like stories that take place far ago or far from now. I love the Legion. I guess that's why I enjoy stories like this. Regarding year 10, Marvel has pretty much said for a while that it's been 10 years since Fantastic Four number one, and it always is. So I put that on Marvel more than Hickman. I think he's just taking advantage of that and using it since it works for his story. And that I didn't know. That I didn't know. I I always thought it was like one year for every three, or was it one year for every seven? I don't remember. So yeah, I guess one year for every seven would put us, would put us, you know, within 10 years. So, uh... Yeah, that's a th- thank you for pointing that out. I totally spaced it. I remember. I, I don't remember what the last thing I heard about the years was. I, it's been a long time since I put any stock into it or paid any attention to it. Um, how does Professor X get the thumb drive from Mystique? It just flies over to him. Did Magneto do it, or is, or he pressed on his helmet? Did it give him telekinesis? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that might just be a. Uh, Maybe Magneto nabbed it. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. I'm liking the info pages so far. Reminds me of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where we are occasionally given excerpts from that book. And uh, yes, I've I've heard that a few times uh, so far. That uh, this is very uh, reminiscent of Hitchhiker's Guide. I've I've never read it myself, but uh, because it you know it doesn't doesn't have pictures and and word balloons in it. But I have heard that a few times uh, since we started this. Uh, regarding the year one hundred, he says, "Thanks. I now have Asuka's voice in my head for Rasputin and Oscar uh, from uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion." I'm assuming because I did make a few references to Evangelion through that. Because, uh, well, let's face it—they put an Ava—they put an Ava unit in year one hundred. That was an Ava unit, a hundred percent. So <laughs> it made me think of Evangelion, and then we had the uh, we had the LCL sort of thing with uh, Nimrod the Lesser there, where he was, you know. Basically boiling people down to their component parts And putting them in a in a thing altogether Which is also very reminiscent of Evangelion uh, Nimrod, he seems creepier to me now with his kindness That's true it, it, Giving him a personality was very, very cool Very, very weird Very, very creepy uh, Regarding the 1000 years I thought the Skeets-like robot was Nimrod I guess we'll see And by now you know that that is Nimrod I, We find out... Uh, we find out pretty quick, because I know I put that correction in there pretty quick, <laughs> because I didn't even realize that it it's so obvious it's Nimrod, because it looks a lot like Nimrod's face, but uh, I, I guess I just really wanted to make the Skeets joke. <laughs> Damn it all, right? Okay, time to read House of X3 and Powers of X3. I'll talk to you later. So thank you so much, Al, for uh, following along, and I know I'm putting these episodes out a lot quicker then, uh, then, I think anybody might be prepared for, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that toward the end. Um, yeah, I, uh, I intended to do this show maybe once a week, um, or maybe just a few times a month. But uh, when I made that deal with myself not to read ahead until I recorded my thoughts on the previous, the, the prior issue. I you know I got too excited. I wanted to get through the story. Um, I also really want to catch up to where we are now, or as close as possible, without you know totally rushing the experience. So uh, thank you so much for your thoughts. I do look forward to hearing your uh, you know your your full thoughts on House of X, Powers of X, as you continue to work your way through it. Please definitely keep us in the loop here, and uh, and I will share your thoughts, and hopefully we'll have some good conversation. Uh, we have a message from Lamar. Uh, our friend here, he says, Okay, my honest Hox Pox review. It's good, but like you, I expect something bad to happen. Especially now going into Dawn of X. I've ordered the first three trades now. How about that? I do not trust Krakoa, Sinister, Apocalypse, or Xavier. He definitely feels creepy. Creepy like that what-if story ruins where he was the president. And I, I, I don't have much what-if... Uh, what if uh, experience But uh, that sounds like a, a very interesting story Exodus returning is good I liked him Really could see this as a progression of the whole X-Corp idea from the early 2000s And the past 20 years of stories were ignored Now X-Corp That was That was the Xavier group Right? The Because uh, I know Boy, Joe Casey did something that I think was called it I was called, like, X-Corps, X C-O-R-P-S, where it was, like, Banshee, and, like, the original designs had them wearing, like, SS outfits, SS uniforms. So I, I remember there was an X-Corp, and then an X-Corps, and Corp, of course, for corporation. But, uh, yeah, I think this was the Xavier thing where he had, he just had different, like, mutants working for him around the globe, I don't think they did enough with that, but they did mention it from time to time, and it also facilitated guest appearances and uh, getting information in very convenient ways from time to time. Uh, Back to Lamar. He says, The art was good. I enjoyed the info pages better since this was a trade. A single issue would have perturbed me a bit. Hasbro needs to make some of these Marvel, Marvel Legends from the variant covers, especially Maggot and Chamber. In the end, I did enjoy it. Oh, the whole resurrection thing the X-Men have now Did Proteus warp Wolvie's egg To have an adamantium bones and claws? That wasn't found in nature property of his I'm still iffy on it Something nasty is gonna happen because of it I didn't even think of that I didn't even think of that Because, I mean Yeah, Wolverine had the uh, the adamantium put on Not from birth, you know That was that was during the whole Weapon X thing So that is a very interesting point And not something I ever thought of So... I do wonder if something's gonna happen because of that and uh, and I, I've been saying a few times here i I wonder how many times they've they've killed and brought Wolverine back that we haven't seen. It just seems like uh I don't know it's it, it feels like Xavier is doing something um, though he's quote unquote dead now, so who knows? <laughs> Thank you so much, Lamar Next uh, bit of feedback here. and we only got three to go. This is from Jeremiah. Uh, who um who was my Hoxpox tour guide back in episode five. He says, I finished episode nine today discussing House of X number five. That's the big issue, of course The issue with the resurrection reveal uh, The church service and the bad guys Get to to go to Krakoa It was a great episode I loved the scene where the bad guys show up And Apocalypse is last It was so well done The build-up, the art, and the dialogue You could feel the tension It was one of my very favorite parts of the whole series And I totally agree Issue 9, I think, is A very powerful issue Where I feel like what we learned and what we experienced in that issue was so risky that it could have been a make or break For I mean, you could have bought every issue up to that point and saw that reveal of the resurrections and bringing the bad guys on on board And you could have just thrown your whole, your whole stack in the fire at that point You know, you could have had that reaction Or you could have maybe been, eh, through the story and then you see that and you're just all in I think that was just a a masterstroke, right? It was just so well done. Uh, the dialogue was wonderful. It was tense. It was nerve wracking. It was. It felt dangerous. Just real good, real good. You know, five stars all the way through for that one. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts, Jeremiah. I do look forward to hearing more from you, uh, Andrew, our pal Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter. He says, I don't like the premise or the new status quo. But I haven't read X-Men in nearly 20 years, so it's just an interesting curiosity to me. I still enjoy hearing your take on the book. And uh, this is interesting, because I, I haven't heard a whole lot negative. But I can totally see why, just as I mentioned before. Uh, you know, this big reveal on the status quo shift, its not for everybody, you know? Um, but I'd definitely love to hear... Uh, Some thoughts, uh, some you know, some uh, I don't want to say contrarian thoughts, but I want to hear some uh, some thoughts that just aren't completely on board with this. So, Andrew, I I would definitely love to hear some of your uh, specifics here uh, from what you've heard and uh, and just uh, just if you could expound on it a little bit because I'm I'm very very curious because I can totally see why this is this might be a tough sell. And I can totally see why some people love it. Um, I am being cautiously optimistic. Uh, there were some scenes in Hoxpox that I absolutely adored. And there were some scenes that I don't ever need to see again. So I, I think I fall somewhere in the middle, but more on the positive side than the negative. So if, you guys, if anybody out there falls more on the negative side, or, or falls anywhere actually, but I, I definitely want to hear some people who uh, didn't receive this. Uh, like a lot of the other folks did just uh, I do want to hear some some differing opinions For sure And thank you so much for sharing, Andrew And we will wrap up with uh, Jason Now he writes in This is regarding the episode where we discussed Excalibur number one I think that was episode 15 Maybe He says, this is the Dawn of X, books, D- Dawn of X book I noped out on most expeditiously it assumed I had a bunch of knowledge about a bunch of characters and crazy backstory, and I just didn't. Now that the, swords, the Sword of X thing is happening, maybe I'll dig into Marvel Unlimited and get caught up. And uh, regarding the crazy backstories, he's, he continues and says, I got about three levels deep into a wiki hole on Betsy Braddock, Psylocke, Quan,an before I just gave up and fixed myself a restorative cocktail. <laughs> and yes... That is a many-splendid story, isn't it? Uh, the Betsy Psylocke-Quanan revanche That, that is a, that's a disaster of a story There is so much going on there And at the same time, nothing really going on Um, I could totally see getting, getting burnt out Even just looking at the wiki on that Uh, and, and as, uh, you know, as I rank them here Excalibur did fall toward the bottom, um uh you know, there and there were parts of it that I loved. I loved seeing Rogan Gambit. Um I loved pretending I was Nick from Family Ties. And and Jason did point out The Art of Being Nick, which was a Nick's spin off from Family Ties, which I, I assumed I dreamt. You know, I, I thought I dreamt that and Joni loves Chachi. I I guess I only really dreamt Joni loves Chachi. Um, but I, I, I there were things in the book I really enjoyed. But it's weird. I mean the two books at the bottom of my list for The Dawn of X number 1s, they both star Psylocke. <laughs> Maybe I just don't like that character as much as I thought. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing, Jason. And uh, I think that's where I'll let you guys go today. If uh, you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can find the blog at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com and also the dedicated X-Lapsed page at xlapsed.com. Chris is on com. Got a Facebook group for um, Other X projects I'm working on uh, From Claremont to Claremont Uh, You could find that on Facebook if you want to Jump in on the conversation about Well, anything X-Men related Or, heck, the weather in your Neighborhood, I don't care Uh, That's uh, a Facebook group Just uh, search for 90s X-Men nine zero men And you should find us Definitely, uh, if you're interested in Chatting us up, just, uh, you know find us it's not hard to do and now that we're wrapped up with all the number ones I'm not sure if I'll take a few days off um, before hopping into the number twos I I know it's overwhelming to drop you know an episode nearly every single day uh, not only for me doing it but for folks who are you know trying to listen to this and trying to listen to their other shows and uh, you know just trying to have a life that doesn't revolve around having my voice in their head so <laughs> I might take a couple days off to let people catch up. I am doing these a few days ahead, so by the time you're listening to this, there's either a few episodes in the hopper waiting to be published, or there aren't. <laughs> I already know, um, or I will already know when we get there. But uh, so if this episode hits and there's not an episode for a couple days, don't don't worry that it's gone. It's just uh, might just be giving, a, giving folks time to catch up. But uh, we'll know better as we get there. I might just power through anyway that's where I'll leave it uh, one last time thanks everybody for hanging out listening reaching out it means a whole lot to me uh, really it'd be a whole lot harder to keep up the uh, you know the the pace and the enthusiasm if uh, if there weren't folks that I knew were listening and, and having a good time with this uh, content so thank you so so much until next time uh, as always I will talk to you again real soon See ya How's it going everybody, this is Chris And welcome to uh, what might be the shortest ever episode of (laughs) X-Lapsed This is going to be episode number 24 And the reason it might be short is because it's uh, Well, the subject today is Fallen Angels number 2 And, uh, well, there's just not a whole lot to say about this one Um, (laughs) This is uh, Fallen Angels volume 2 number 2 At a January 2020 cover date We'll hop right in uh, the story's called Shoto, written by Brian Hill, with art by Simon Gudransky. Colors by Frank Diarmada, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson White-Sobolsky. This had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale November 27th, 2019. Now we hop right in. We open in London, and we're in the past. We see quan is chatting up a fellow who is looking for safe passage. He apparently betrayed the clan, who I'm assuming uh, she's talking about the hand here. Uh, She tells the man she can free him before, you know, killing him. She smashes a glass into his face and eyes before running him through with her katana. Huh. A katana is a sword, is it? Hmm. Then, a pair of gun-wielding goofballs enter the scene, but Quinan is able to neutralize them handily by, uh, you know, chopping them into bits and then uh, stomping one down in a double-page spread. Speaking of double-page spreads, the credits are next, followed by our roll call. So let's meet our cast for this issue. We got Psylocke, of course, that is Quinan, X-23, Kid Cable, Dazzler, and Mr. Sinister. So, is Dazzler joining the team? Is she going to be a fallen angel? Well, we'll find out. Now, we resume actual comics content, and we're in the present on Krakoa. Psylocke and X-23 are talking about trust in what feels like a very convenient little conversation. Uh, Psylocke is basically talking in riddles, which comes across as, like, really wanting to sound deep, um, when in all actuality... It just sounds like uh, somebody's trying to impress their ninth-grade creative writing teacher. Um, we get lines like, "I'll show you how to be a master," but even still, every master is still a slave. And come on! Uh, now, after baffling Laura with BS, Psylocke breaks away to chat up Kid Cable at Carousel. So the uh, the mutants are still dancing. No, the dance party has not ended yet. Uh, Psylocke finds Cable and asks why he still subjects himself to this weird dance party if he's not going to join in. He says something along the lines of wanting to feel what the others feel, sort of by osmosis. He then reveals that he did some digging on Overclock, which uh, I honestly forgot all about. Now we learn that the the town of São Mateus in Brazil is currently on fire. We can see some large spidery mechs terrorizing a tiny town. Uh, Those people have been enslaved by an Overclock cartel, Even the children whose uh, tiny hands and fingers make them a great asset for something, I guess. You know, on that subject, or sort of on that subject, my wife recently got me to start watching Breaking Bad. Uh, This is a show I've avoided successfully for like a decade now. So now, you know, as a guy on the internet who's watched a couple episodes of Breaking Bad, I'm more or less an expert on making drugs, right? You know, from all the circles I've heard Breaking Bad discussed in... You become an expert on making drugs if you watch a couple episodes of that show. Uh, but still, I don't know what tiny fingers have to do with drug making. Maybe we'll learn something new. Anywho, Little Nate wants to uh, wants their unnamed team of oddballs and misfits to head to Salmateus to rescue the kiddos. Psylocke ain't feeling it. Now She comments that each time they leave Krakoa, they're making a risk of the island itself turning against them. And so, they're going to need to pick their battles now more than ever. You know, If they choose to leave the island, if it's up to Psylocke, it's going to be in pursuit of Apoth. And Apoth is, uh, of course, the fella we were introduced to, or sort of introduced to, last issue. Cable is rightfully annoyed and threatens to head there on his own. Then Dazzler. Hey, I'm sure she's going to do something amazing here, considering she got herself a little character tile on the roll call page. She actually does not. Um, worth noting for fellow lapsed fans, Dazzler's back in a more, more classic getup. Because uh, the last time I saw her, she had like this sort of like punk rock look with a half-shaved head, which actually looked even more dated than her disco duds. It felt very, very past its sell-by date. Uh, anyway, Dazzler encourages Psylocke to embrace the joy of Krakoa and you know have a good time with friends. Psylocke agrees that she could use a friend, and then walks away. Is, is this high school creative writing? Is it? Oh, well, how would you like an info page? How about two info pages, because we got two. Uh, first, a page discussing the way of the hand, which was uh, quite boring. Second, a more flowery version of the same, which, while still boring, is at least far a fair amount shorter. Back to comics, and we are back to flashback land, but now we're in Japan. Now, after a bit of a chase, a woman has crashed her car into a light post. She finds herself surrounded by a gaggle of Cobra Commander-looking goofs with their guns drawn. Not for long, though, because someone with a big ol' kadana is there to save the day. And so, body parts are just flying everywhere. This is, of course, Quinan. She takes the woman to safety fills her in on the situation. Uh, You know, she, Psylocke, that is, reveals that she just killed this woman's husband. So we can probably assume that uh, this is the goober from the opening flashback she's talking about. She further reveals that she was also contracted to kill this woman. So she's going to kill the husband, who she already killed, and she was supposed to kill the wife, but she ain't going to do it. Now, you see, our hero touched the fella's mind before killing him, and since he lied for and died for this woman and their unborn child, Quinan has decided to show a bit of mercy. She also gives the woman a bunch of money and a boot in the ass out of Japan. We learn that this woman did not get too far. She was captured, tortured, and killed. But she never spilled the beans that Quinan tried to save her. From here, we go into another flashback. Flashback inside a flashback. A few panels from Quinan's youth, and we get a... They, they talk about butterflies a bit. You know how this book is. To the present, Psylocke is at Bar Sinister, and they're talking about butterflies. Now Quinan reveals that she hates that butterflies are something that she and Betsy Braddock ever had in common. Sinister grants her passage off the island and assures her that he is her ally. And so we meet up with Quinan at Cable's house. She agrees to accompany him to Mateus. Oh, and, and X-23 is coming, too. Quanan states that she wants to teach Cable about war and X-23 about rage. And all she wants is, in exchange is to learn from them about... goodness. Goodness, indeed. Ugh. Um, we wrap up this issue in Salmateus. Cable does a scan, and then our ramshackle trio finds themselves under attack by... a giant spidery mech. So that... Is a wrap for our Dawn of X number twos. So, uh, I'd say let's talk about this, but there isn't a whole lot to say, is there? Uh, this was kind of a nothing issue, wasn't it? Um, I'm sitting here, and I, you know, I know we have a head of X, right? We've got uh, we've got Hickman here, who's Who's steering the ship, and I'm sure he's giving the writers a little bit of guidance on, on things he wants included So we can get to a, a, a merging point, right? Because I'm sure, you know, we have Sword of X's that's going to... Or X... however the hell you say the name, X of Swords, Ten of Swords, X of Tens, uh, as Jason puts it um, So I'm sure that there's going to be some some cohesion, right? Some cohesive sort of... a Fiber running through this So, I'm trying to think about What the point of the series is If there even is one um, I did note a few times During the uh, proceedings That Quanan wielded a big ol' katana So, maybe those are seeds Being planted for exoswords. I mean, I almost have to assume That's the case Otherwise, wh- what could the point Of this possibly be? I mean, who's asking for this? <laughs> I didn't uh, I really didn't care about the care for this one. I was uh very optimistic about the first one, or maybe too optimistic for the first issue here. Um, while it wasn't completely up my alley, you know, I I try to temper my scores uh by reconciling that not everything's going to be written for me, so I try to and I don't even score things, I just try to frame my mind right, I guess. Now. If you're a regular listener, you might recall that the last few times we covered X-Force, I mentioned that I thought Ben Percy, the writer, can be sort of kind of unsubtle with his methods, right? I've I've mentioned that. um, You know, this Fallen Angel story, though, I hate to do like the old internet meme here, but it it wants X-Force to hold its beer. I feel like the level of depth preciousness and melodrama we're letting Quinan indulge in is wholly unearned and as such it feels wildly forced it's trying hard, maybe too hard, to be poignant but uh you know, as Damien mentioned in his feedback for the first issue of Fallen Angels, it really just feels like a holdover from the mid-90s uh, I don't know who this story might be aimed at but unfortunately I'm not part of that group of people I will maintain, however, that the art fits the tone of the book, and I really enjoy Kudransky's stuff. Um, But, I mean, other than that, I mean, is there anything else to to say? Uh, uh, You know, maybe if I spent a little bit more time unraveling the repetitive and inane butterfly chatter, I'd find something, but... I mean, I was sort of over that last issue. Um... I was hopeful that we'd start seeing more members join this uh, unnamed team here. Especially, you know, we see Dazzler in the roll call box, you know. Not that I'm a huge fan of Dazzler or anything, but I just feel like she could have been maybe a fun addition, you know, uh, to a book that features three very serious, and navel-gazy sorts of characters here. Throw Dazzler in there for some comic relief, you know. Throw, throw her in there for maybe just as a point-of-view character who isn't Their own ass Like these other Characters can be Um Unfortunately You know I I do have all the issues I've been getting them As they've been coming out I haven't read them But uh I don't recall seeing Anybody but our big three On any of the remaining covers So I, I guess time will tell Whether or not Their ranks increase Um But Unfortunately And I hate being negative I uh I would be much more Comfortable sitting on my fence As I usually do But uh this isn't for me. But in the interest of completionism, and only in the interest of completionism, we will see this through till its end here. We only have four more issues to go. We're a third of the way through it. So, we're getting there. And and you know what? Hey. I've been proven wrong before. I've been proven I've been proven wrong more times than I've been proven right. So, maybe the next issue will hit and it'll just it'll just knock me for a loop and I'll love it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see. In uh, we'll see. You know, in about a week, how we're feeling about that. Uh, but that's it for uh, the number twos. Next, we uh, we've got our milestone twenty-fifth episode of, of X Lapsed here. I'm thinking holofoil, chromium plated. You know, maybe die cut. We'll uh, we'll do it up good here, and it's going to feature our first Dawn of X number three with X Men. But before I let you guys go. Do have a bit of feedback we're going to hit today. Now, we'll start with Damien. He's discussing X-Men number two. And he says, I've definitely got less to say as we move on. This issue is really just set up for X of Swords. The whole summoner stuff lost me. Why should I care who this is? The whole reuniting islands can't feel significant as we had only a few weeks to process the split, which was a tiny element of a previous story. Now, if you haven't listened to the uh, episode where we discussed X-Men number two, the whole gimmick there is that Krakoa was searching out this island that appeared. This uh, reef, uh, or coral, that showed up. And, uh, you know, the X-Men didn't know what was going on. They didn't know why Krakoa would be attracted to this island, because they don't know Krakoa's origin like we do. And uh, basically what it wanted to do was either bang and or merge with this, you know, this coral and uh, we found out that the island was split during Hoxpox, right? And uh, Damien's point here is excellent, because uh, it's like almost soap operatic in the pacing. Um, Now, I've talked a bit on this channel about how, you know, my my wife got me to start watching Days of Our Lives like 15 years ago. We watch it every day, (laughs) every single weekday. We watch Days of Our Lives without fail. Um, And this reveal, or story beat, ...feels very much like something out of that, you know, as it pertains to pacing. Not so much in story, nothing nothing quite as interesting as islands banging and merging happens on days, unfortunately. But uh, in in the soap opera here, if a character is set to come back, you know, a character you haven't seen in a while... ...or if a particular beat of a story is about to change, suddenly, like, all the dialogue becomes about that character or that beat, Right? You'll have, like, a couple of characters sitting at the at the cafe or the pub, and they'll say, Oh, I wonder what Sammy might think of this. And you think to yourself, Well, Sammy hasn't been on the show for four years, so <laughs> now that they're talking about her again in passing, well, she's probably going to show up with them the next few days, and without fail. That's generally the case. Now here, we have this new origin for Krakoa, which, you know, it was only a, a couple weeks ago, like Damien said, that we found out that Krakoa was... Uh, you, was split in the first place. So this is definitely a quick revisit, and it kind of takes the oomph out of the original beat, uh, for sure. It's a... Uh, you know, make us wait for stuff like that, right? Not that it's a huge thing, but still. Uh, back to Damien, he says, The thing most jarring to me about this issue is the Rachel-Cable relationship. Surely there should be acknowledgement that baby Cable was part-raised by an older Ra- Rachel and that young Rachel knew a much older Cable. And, uh, yes yeah I mentioned that during the uh, during the discussion there, that they they really fell into that like sort of you know the squabbling siblings uh, mold right and uh, to me I took that as just like another bit of the the uncanny summerhouse tone you know it feels to me like we looked at that issue uh, in issue one of x-men we had like the summerhouse dinner scene and then in x-men two we had the summers family you know, outing here. And it feels to me that these characters aren't necessarily in-character. It's almost like they're just playing roles. I mean, Rachel and Cable is like the archetype for the silly, squabbling siblings, and uh, so that's exactly how they're going it, to play it. Just like Scott, you know, he falls into that that archetypical silly sitcom dad mold, you know? It really feels to me like... And I don't know everything about the resurrections. I know only what I've read. Like, is did Xavier do something? Is Xavier putting putting expectations in where it's like it's like, well, no, you're the dad. You act like this, and so Cyclops is going to start acting like like he's you know talking to a laugh track. You know, it feels very very weird. I almost hope that's the case because otherwise. Otherwise, these characters are just not what they have ever been before, you know? At least, they're not as deep as they were before. They're just taking these very, very silly elements and putting them at the forefront. Now, back to uh, Damien. He says, by the way, I've been reading X of Swords as Cross of Swords. I did ask how we pronounce it, right? Um, Now, he says Cross of Swords, implying a battle. And he says... But I have no idea what the intention is. I doubt it's ten, but you never know. And then a little bit later on, he wrote and said, I just read the first issue of X of Swords, and it is ten. According to the story, it's a tarot card. Apparently, anything I say is as likely to be true as your guesses. So, yeah, I didn't... I, I heard some people say ten. I've seen some people say X and cross. That's probably the best take I've heard so far. Because it actually makes sense. Um... I will probably keep saying X of Swords, because, I mean, it is an X there, right? It It, it, do, it is a letter X, and also, I'm an idiot. Um, I figure maybe I'll just start calling these books like Ten Force, or Ten Men. You know, giant-sized Ten Men, Ten Factor. Uh, hey, we got Fallen Angels. I'll call Laura 1023, right? <laughs> we'll do that to really make people uh, kind of squirm in their seats and think that I'm a complete horse's ass, but... Uh, Yes, uh, thank you so much for the the email, Damien. Um, and yeah, there will be as as I proved today with this episode, there will be far less to say about some of these issues as we uh, as we move on. Uh, not every single one of them is going to be destination reading, and unfortunately, Fallen Angels number two, well, it fallen into that trap. Uh, but thank you so much, Damien. Our next piece comes from Jason Colby. Here he says, "Hi again, Chris." Here's a few things I thought about when listening to your X lapsed coverage of Marauder's Number Two, or when reading Marauder's Number Two. That sprung up, uh, that sprung from a randomly firing neuron when I typed this. I'm having a beer while I knock this out, so apologies for any rambling, and feel free to edit ruthlessly if you end up wanting to give any of this nonsense airtime. And of course, I'm I don't edit things. So any, <laughs> I don't even edit my own stammering, so I'm not gonna I'm not going to edit every anything out. Uh, uh, Jason's first point The X-Desk data pages Now, of course, that was in Marauders number two We got a letter from the X-Desk uh, Discussing the exploits of, uh, of Captain Kate's, uh, you know, crew And Jason says, I think this is a pretty good gimmick uh, Minor spoiler, this isn't the last one we'll see It gives the writer a nice way to show how the human world Specifically from the American direction Is reacting to what's going on in Krakoa we don't otherwise get a lot of human POV in these books. Also an opportunity to get in some quick exposition and to seed things to pay off in comic pages later on. And yeah, I did enjoy the... Uh, I, I, I think I said I enjoyed it. I, I don't remember. <laughs> it's been so long. But uh, the X-Desk from, uh, you know, from the feds, I think that's a cool way to do it. And, and to Jason's point, uh, it does give a different, uh, it does give a different point of view. Like All we're seeing is what's happening We don't know how it's being spun We don't know how it's being explained to people in power We don't know how we, we just don't know how it's being presented So these give us an opportunity to see that And maybe, as Jason said, maybe it is seeding things That we'll be able to see play out later on So yes, the X-Desk is fine I'm, I'm down with that Um Batroc! <laughs> Yes, he's become one of the go-to joke villains Who else belongs in that group? The Trapster? Kite Man over at the Distinguished Competition? Who else? Anyway, it was nice to see Batrock taken seriously recently In issue number six of the current Black Cat Everyone's favorite master of the French martial, martial arts, Savat Goes on a date with Felicia Hardy And then they go steal something together Hey, it's important for a couple to have common interests And that actually sounds like it might be a fun issue Um I... I've said it before, you know. I said it when we when we covered Marauders number two. The when I see someone use Bat-Track, I usually assume that the writer is just standing there, sitting there, you know, rubbing their hands together, waiting for the memes to start pouring in, just like just like Kite Man, you know, just like Paste Pot Pete. You know, it's those those ha ha random characters that we see uh, that uh, that social media seems to take such a, such a shine to. Um, Teams Jason's next point is about teams He says You mentioned this episode that you were surprised at at the lack of any real teams In what you thought might be team based books Two words Fear not So that's good Uh, Dallas is right Now uh, this is Jason He says I'm going to agree with your correspondent Dallas That the series of one shots nature of X-Men is working well for me at the beginning of Dawn of X, Hickman said something to the effect that he was going to use the main X-Men book to showcase Cyclops and to use him to peek in at different aspects of the new status quo. So far, it's been pretty effective. But I can see how some readers might get annoyed when a storyline set up in another book doesn't get the payoff there, but get re- gets resolved in the X-Men book instead. And yeah, that's kind of... That's kind of, you know... <laughs> you take the grizzle with the meat, right? It's, a uh, Cause I I would complain about that if I wasn't so, you know, in, set in my ways where I want all these books to kind of bleed into one another. I want, I want stuff like, you know, Xavier's passing in one book to be addressed in all the other books. I come from that time, you know, that my X Men were, were the nineteen nineties where they were basically a fiefdom unto themselves. You know, they never really left their yard, but all the books were interconnected, or all the books referenced one another. So you could... It's like you had to read everything, basically, because, you know, for several months out of the year, they would be literally crossing over, <laughs> but for the rest of the time, you know, stuff would be addressed. You know, or if the if X-Force was staying at, the, uh, at Xavier's mansion... You might see X Force in the background of an X Men issue, or there might be a scene where where Sam talks to Scott. You know, you'd see stuff like that. But I like that. I like that. But I can definitely see how a reader, a new reader, perhaps, would be very, very irritated that if if they picked X Force as their book, or if they, God forbid, picked Fallen Angels as their book, and uh, and whatever comes up isn't solved there, and but you'd have to buy an issue of X-Men instead. I could definitely see that being annoying, for sure, for sure. Uh, from here, Jason shares with us his brief X-history. He says, Last time I wrote in, you were surprised that anyone would have Hox Pox Docs be their first experience reading X-Books. Really more a matter of timing than anything else. I only started really reading comics around 2016. The first comic I subscribed to as it came out was Tom King's Vision. And then I found my way to DC stuff when they had their rebirth. And then I started listening to the Weird Science DC Comics podcast and first heard you and Reggie doing your thing. I think you two were on the young animal beat at that point. And uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. It's always it's always cool to, to see another uh, member of the uh, GFC. You know, um, the uh, that young animal... Um, I'll finish I'll finish uh, Jason's point here but I do want to discuss a little bit about the young animal and what that taught me about uh, about the the current year reviewing process. Um, Jason continues as you might recall the mid- 2010s were kind of a dark time for the x men when the blue and gold books got their start I took a peek but nothing there hooked me. There seemed to be multiple young and old instances of just about every character running around simultaneously, and then there was a vampire running a school in Central Park, and, yeah, it didn't grab me. But then I looked in again when Jonathan Hickman took over, and here we are. I'll go back someday and read the classic runs, but right now my knowledge of back history is severely limited. So, a couple of things I want to talk about there. Um, First, uh... I think it was last episode when we were, uh, I was covering Damien's message about Fallen Angels number one, and I talked about how I have like a current year comics cushion when I discuss a book. I try to be, I try to like crank up the optimism a little bit because it's kind of how you have to be um, with current year books. Young Animal uh, taught me. About that, because there was a book from Young Animal, and I've talked about it a few times. I actually have a whole episode of Chris's On Infinite Earths about this very event. I think it was episode 12 in the archives. Um, Mother Panic was a book for Young Animal. It introduced a brand new character. It was written by Jody Hauser, and she had a rotating cast of artists. Um, and at first, Reggie and I didn't care for it. We did not care for it, but we were always very, very careful About how we expressed that We wouldn't say this is a bad book We would not say this book sucks We would not say we hate this book We would say something along the lines of We're not the audience for this book Kind of like I said today with Fallen Angels number two Mother Panic was a book that we wanted to like Because it was a brand new character And we don't get those very often in comics But we didn't like it at first we eventually came around to really, really enjoying the book toward the uh, like the second two thirds of the run, and then into the follow-up miniseries, which we adored. We adored it, but the thing of it is, we were working for Weird Science at that time, and they they used a you know an X out of ten rating system to kind of fall in line with the, you know the comic book roundup groups and all that kind of stuff. So while saying. Nothing outright bad about Mother Panic I think I gave the first issue Like a 6.5 out of 10 Said, you know There is an audience for this book Unfortunately, it's not me Well People When you write for a site That uses a number rating scale You might find that A lot of your audience doesn't bother to read the review But only reads the number So I could have been saying any number of things in these reviews, but the fact that I gave it a 6.5 out of 10 was enough for people to decide that I was public enemy number one. I was a misogynist because I would not say anything nice about a book that a woman wrote. I was every ist you could imagine. People came to uh, my blog, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and bombarded me. It might have just been one person, but I was bombarded with comments calling me out And, but not, not in a constructive sort of way and not in a way that really invited any follow up or like a response. It was basically just telling me I was the worst person on the planet and, uh, in very vulgar sorts of ways. And, uh, you know, I learned then and there, it's like, wow, you know, um, you almost have to, you have to overcorrect. And, uh, I've never lied in a review since then, but, uh. But that's where my cushion comes in, you know? So instead of a 6.5, I might give it the cushion. And it's like, well, okay, well, it's not for me. But if this is your sort of book, you'd probably like it. So maybe it's a 7.5. Or if I'm in a really good mood, an 8. <laughs> you know? Um, that's, that really informed the way I did current year reviews. Um, that's kind of why... With these issues, some of them haven't been for me, but I I have trouble saying anything outright negative about it, you know? Um, of course, we're doing this in Fallen Angels Number 2, where I think I was maybe a little mean, I don't know, but I, I was honest, and <laughs> that's the thing. Um, but uh, the Young Animals series of uh, podcasts, that is available here at the uh, Chris and Reggie channel, at the archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. There are 18 episodes covering... Every single book from Young Animal, from uh, 2016 to 2019, I think. Uh, we didn't do the second wave, of course, but uh, we did the entire first wave um, through Milk Wars and into the uh, miniseries and uh, it's about a 30-hour-long playlist. So if you have 30 hours to spare, give it a shot. <laughs> it's if you ever if you want to hear me drop my first f-bomb and I think last f-bomb. It's in the Young Animal Gathering. You can hunt it down there. Uh, (laughs) But to uh, Jason's other point, he says something here which, as a tenured fan of the X-Men, bothered me, and I could not imagine how a new reader would take to this. He says here, there seem to be multiple young and old instances of just about every character running around simultaneously. Boom. That was... That was crap. (laughs) You know? We had the original five, then we had the other original five We had Old Man Logan we, It was ridiculous how many versions of the same characters we had running around And uh, I couldn't imagine a brand new reader coming in Trying to navigate that And uh, trying to realize the significance of it I'd been reading this for a quarter century at that point, and I couldn't figure out the significance of it. And it made me run away for the first time ever. I ran away with the intention of never, ever coming back. So, yes. <laughs> like Jason. Nothing hooked me there either, pal. <laughs> um, now, Jason continues. He says, this is regarding humor in the book. He says, what do you think about how humor has been used in the Dawn of X book so far? I can't think of many times when it's been deployed well. And lots of times when the dialogue was clearly supposed to be guffaw-inducing, but left me either cold or actively cringing. Okay, Kitty trying to waltz through a gate, but instead busting her nose on it, did make me smile, but only because I'm a bad person. Her whole mutant deal is being able to walk through things. So having the thing that was most that is porous to every other mutant be rock-solid to her is some well-deployed irony. Other than that, I haven't gotten a lot of chuckles from these books. I hadn't really thought about it before, but were there any jokes even attempted in House of X or Powers of X? I can't immediately come up with any. And I think that was a good choice, given the content and tone of those books. Humor in a serious comic can be, can be hard to pull off. It's great when it lands, but when it doesn't, it can pull me right out of the world of the book faster than any about, about any other defect. Better not to do humor than to do it poorly. And uh, I'm trying to think here. Um, was there any humor? You know, I could think of when we went to Bar Sinister, right? We went to Bar Sinister, and there was that bit about Magneto's cape. And although I found it wildly out of character for Sinister, it still got me to chuckle. You know, your your cape is fabulous, you know? It was just... Uh, it caught me off guard, which might be the reason why I smiled, but even now I think it was funny. Uh, wildly out of character for the sinister I knew growing up, but funny. I'm trying to think if there's any other any other jokes here, because I know in these, I couldn't tell you when, because, I mean, this uh, X-Lapsed is probably up to something along the lines of 30 hours itself at this point. I don't know, yeah, I don't know what I've, uh, when I've pointed out that I've laughed, but I know I've mentioned that I've laughed a couple times, or a handful of times. I just just outright can't remember right now. But uh, but your point is well taken. Um, these are these are serious comics, um, which was what I thought was going to be a turnoff to me. I thought that the serious tone of this uh, new world was just going to be enough to you know kind of push me out. Um, but it's, it's held on to me so far, but I, I'm trying to think if I can point out anything that was outright funny. <laughs> and I can't. Um, outside of the cape thing, and of course Kitty you know, smashing her face, that, that was funny. Uh, especially with how, how annoying I found her to be. <laughs> Seeing her walk into a wall was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll put a pin in that and try to think of... Uh, of what made me laugh here, and I'll I'll try to I'll try to you know remember to to put it in next time. Um, that's the end of uh, Jason's email. He says that's more than too much from me. So until Colossus becomes a pitchman for Rust- Rustolium, make mine X laps. Well, thank you so much for writing in, Jason, and for sharing your thoughts. Uh, it's always it's always a treat when you share your thoughts. I I, I very very much appreciate it. But uh, you know before we actually close this one out, I almost forgot to do it. But let's rank. The number twos here Let's try to rank the Dawn of X number twos Goes without saying at the very bottom of that list is Fallen Angels number two Did not care for it um, Next would be uh, Excalibur number two Excalibur number two would be number five uh, I think Yeah, I think Marauders number two would be a uh, fourth then X Force would be third. Second would be X Men, and uh, New Mutants would be uh, my favorite for this uh, for this uh, second set of books. I was going to say second month, but these were all double shipping. So the second set of books: New Mutants number one, then X Men, then X Force then Marauders, then Excalibur, then Fallen Angels. So, I'd love to hear your guys' lists and uh, see if they match up or if you guys think I'm completely out of my mind. Either way works fine for me. But uh, <laughs> but thank you, everybody, for uh, taking part and enjoying and hanging out and all that good stuff. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all the stuff At Earth.com Or com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men And the complete audio archives Are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com And of course, you know, you can find those young animals there All 30 hours of them If you want to hear about Doom Patrol Shade the Changing Girl Mother Panic And Cave Carson having an interstellar eye Well, <laughs> we got them there Um... But I think that's it for today. Uh, one last time, thank you all so, so much for listening. I very, very much appreciate it. It means it means so much to me. I, I really, uh, in all seriousness, I, it's hard for me to put into words what it means to me. But uh, thank you all. And uh, till next time, uh, with our big milestone 25th episode, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Going, everybody. This is Chris. Welcome to X Lapsed episode 30. Wow, 30 episodes. That's a, that's a pretty big deal, right? Well, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, today, we're going to be wrapping up the Dawn of X number threes, which means today's Fallen Angels Day. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Fallen Angels, volume 2, number 3, at a February 2020 cover date. The story is called Seppuku. Written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Guzranski. Colors by Frank Diarmada, letters VC's Joe Sabino. Design's Tom Muller. Head of X's Hickman. The edits are Robinson White Sabolski. This one had a $3.99 cover price in the USA and went on sale on December 11th, 2019. Now, before we get into this story, um, just something that happened this morning. Uh, now, it's funny. After reading episode 29's X-Force bit, right, uh, I did something I don't often do when it comes to, uh, you know, putting together an episode of X-Lapsed. I actually scrolled down on the Marvel Wiki page for the issue. Now, full disclosure, I do check the Wiki every day that I do an episode just to confirm the release date for the issue. But that's generally where my Wiki research ends. You know, the, the release date is right there on the top, Right under the cover, bada-bing, bada-boom, I confirm it, and uh, I move on with my day. This time, however, I decided to scroll down uh, out of curiosity and to see whether or not there was any mention of Colossus being captive in Zeno's canister. And I found nothing. Then curiosity got the better of me, and I checked out the pages, the wiki pages, for some of the other books that we've discussed here, and also... nothing. Nothing. Now, it would seem that the moderators of the wiki uh, are only bothered to synopsize HoxPox stuff, which, I don't know, feels a little bit half-hearted. Um, now, the way I look at it, if you're going to maintain a wiki, you're gonna if you're going to build a resource for the fandom, you either do all of it, or you just don't bother. Uh, it feels kind of cheap, only covering the big books, right? Um, as a guy who uh, creates content... Uh, I'm I would say I'm fairly prolific. I, I'd never say that I was good, but uh, facts are facts. I am prolific. For just about five years, I've been doing something every single day. And I struggle to find an audience. I struggle to find folks to listen or to read or to watch or whatever. And when I get in my own head, you know, and I think about the struggle to find an audience and uh, and I get kind of down on myself. That's where I try to reframe what I do. Um, What I do is sort of kind of evergreen. Um, uh, This might be less so, this program, but uh, I try to keep my content as evergreen as possible so someone may find it at any point in time. And that's where I start telling myself that I'm building a resource. You know, for future researchers, comic historians, whatever. If uh, anybody wants to hear about... You know, five five issues from the mid '70s where Vartox appeared in Action Comics. It's there. You know, I, I feel like I'm building a resource here, and I understand that there are. I mean, there's cheap heat out there, right? I could do, you know, I could do every issue of Crisis, and I'll know that people will look at them. I can do, you know, uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow? I could do Watchmen. I could do the. I could do the hits. You know, and I know people will come, but I'm building a resource, so it's all or nothing. So I see these, uh, I see these, you know, wiki pages for uh, these Dawn of X books, and they're blank because I have a feeling the people <laughs> who write these things realize that ain't nobody gonna look for Fallen Angels number three, but they will look for House of X number two. So they spend all their time doing that. I. I- I don't know why that gets under my skin so much. I, I actually I do know why it does. I feel like if you're building a resource, well then damn it, you build a resource. You don't just you don't just play for the hits. Um, but yeah, uh, the, I'll get off my soapbox here. It's just something that jumped out at me when I was just trying to find out if Colossus was in that canister in X Force number three, and I found Diddly and Squat. But uh, but I can find. Five or six people trying to do the do the page for House of X number two with the Uncanny Lives of Mora X. <laughs> it's a, I don't know that just gets under my skin. But all right, so we're we're talking about a book that very few people care about. us. you know definitely the people at the wiki don't care about it. We are getting into Fallen Angels number three. Okay, so we open the very beautiful cover. And uh, we get we open with another purpley-prosy page, wherein Apoth refers to itself as a god, and Quanan as the mother of God. We even get a riff on Michelangelo's creation of Adam painting with a machine finger in the role of God's own. Uh, it's already just a little bit head up its own ass, and uh, we're only three panels in. Then, we get a full page of our trio of heroes stood before that giant spidery mech from Last Issue's cliffhanger. While we're looking at the cast, let's meet them. And it's a pretty short list. It's just Psylocke or Quinan, Cable, and X-23. After two more wasted pages, we're back to comics. Cable launches into an attack on the mech and is swatted away. Now, this leaves Psylocke and X-23 to hide behind some debris to plan their next move. This gives Quan'an the opportunity to tell X-23, a killing machine, how to do her job. She says that the enemy deserves Laura's rage. And so Laura snicks and bum-rushes the bot. I don't exactly know why Psylocke felt the need to hold her back when she ultimately just told her to go kill the thing. Uh, I don't know, this mentor-mentee relationship between the two of these, uh, these characters here feels incredibly forced and wildly unnecessary. Anywho, Laura slices and dices, and once she makes her way to the soft nougat of the monster, of the spider bot, that is, uh, Psylocke reels her back. You see, there's a tiny child inside the machine who begs not to be killed. In Portuguese, which thankfully and conveniently Laura understands. Psylocke taps the tot on the head to read its thoughts and is overcome by what she she sees, but we'll put a pin in that for now. We shift scenes and we rejoin Cable, who is strung up in a tree by his arms. He's ultimately freed by a shadowy figure and is invited to accompany it so they might discuss the future. Now, from Cable's point of view, this thing looks uh, kind of like a... I don't want to be crude, but a very diseased part of the female anatomy. Cable fires at it, but is suddenly struck in the back of the head by a machine part, which looks as though it's lodged itself into his dome. Cable smiles. I At least I think he's smiling, anyway. Uh, the creature tells our man that they can now behold the peace of the one mind and let it cleanse him. Ugh. Then... Two pages of prose,
2: mm-hmm.
1: just what we needed—a break from a pretty dull story with some even duller text. It's titled "Excerpts from the Scrolls of Exile." Nope. <laughs> Though a quick scan of these pages, I can see the word butterfly no less than three times. So, no. Back to Psylocke. Now she's scanning that kid's brain and learns that Doi Apoth took the children. I thought we already knew this I, I don't know why this is a revelation The kid in the bot then dies Psylocke x asks why keeps taking children To which Laura reminds her that, you know, Quinan had a child taken from her And so this all feels kind of like a message to her Apoth, Overclock, it's all about Quinan. The ladies then spend an entire page having a wildly forced back and forth they ultimately come to the conclusion that they're going to have to call off the search for Cable and instead go after the children, because Cable would have wanted it that way. Which is fair enough, I guess. Speaking of Cable, he's once again strapped to something. He must really be getting used to like that spread eagle pose, because he's always strapped to something. He's addressed as part man and part machine in perfect unity. And we finally see this creature out of the shadows and, uh... Has a page out of, like, a recent issue of Spawn somehow falling into our Fallen Angels book? Because this... uh, (laughs) This is, uh... kind of uninspired here. Uh, Goes without saying, this is to be continued. At least we're halfway through. Next, we'll be discussing not X-Men number four. That one skipped. Instead, we're going to be jumping right into Marauders number four. But first, let's... Let's talk about this. This was, well, this was more or less just a fight scene. And uh, one that doesn't inspire me to say all that much, unfortunately. I'm starting to feel like I should save all of our mailbag correspondence for Fallen Angels Day just to get some extra minutes (laughs) added to the episode. I mean, I know that this is a free show, uh, but with subjects like this, I still can't help to think that I'm somehow ripping you all off <laughs> in some form or fashion I really can't think of much to say here um, I couldn't imagine coming away from this having spent four dollars and feeling as though I'd gotten my money's worth uh, the art's still strong and the cover was beautiful but at the end of the day there just isn't all that much in the way of meat on these story bones um, what do we got? a fight with the spider mech Cable got taken away by that gross whatever-the-hell ghoul thing, and that's it. We seem to learn the same facts about Apoth that we've already learned over the course of the last two chapters. I think we've learned it each chapter, so this is the third time that we learned that Apoth kidnaps and uses children. I mean, yeah, we saw that in the very first panel of this series. I'm really not sure why this was treated like such a revelation here, but whatever. And at this point, I'm just vamping to fill time. Uh, This is just, there's nothing to say about it. I didn't hate it, but it didn't inspire me to want to read on. Naturally, since this is a completionist program and I am not a writer at the Marvel Wiki, and also I'm an idiot, we will see this one through to its conclusion. Just like with the previous two issues of the series, I can't say it's outright bad. It's just not for me. If this sort of story is your jam, then you're probably on cloud nine and you're digging the hell out of it. So, that is that. Since this is the final third issue of the Dawn of X run here, let's uh, let's rank the books in order of, uh, I can't say quality, but uh, in order of how how much I liked them. Number one for, for Dawn of X Books 3 is Marauders. Um... It wasn't the greatest issue, but this was kind of a a ranking of attrition (laughs) week here. Uh, These were exceptionally weak offerings from uh, the the entire spectrum of X-Books here. Marauders, I did enjoy the most. So Marauders gets top slot. Second, I put X-Force. Third, I put Excalibur up, you know, like two slots from where it usually is. Fourth, is X-Men, with its, uh, you know, the Golden Girls, the old ladies. Fifth is New Mutants, and sixth would be Fallen Angels, so... You know, it is a different week. It is a pretty different week here. Marauders, though, probably out of the three issues we've gotten from all these books, Marauders is the most consistent. You know, I, I wasn't the hugest fan of it last week, but, uh... But yeah, this is probably the most consistent book of the line so far. So there's the rankings. I look forward to hearing other other folks chime in on what they feel uh, were were their rankings for the third issues of the Dawn of X run. But uh, now, before I let you all go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got one from Damien, and he is uh, referencing X Force number two and Excalibur number three. Now he starts with, at the risk of becoming too self-referential, I need to respond to your to your response of my feedback. First, I really don't think writers are using Beast as an author mouthpiece. I think his change of character is down to the general cultural shift, which sees which sees nature as good and science as bad. Like Reed Richards and Hank Pym, Beast is being portrayed as flirting with villainy. This is not just a comic trope. Stranger Things would be a good example of this trend. It genuinely seems that writers are incapable of writing heroic scientists nowadays. I know in the UK we have seen some very bad real-life outcomes from the identification of science as paternalistic and controlling. Hopefully we're seeing a re-evaluation which will be reflected in our stories. And that's a very interesting take. And it's not one that I had even thought of, though. Your point is very well taken. Um, I'm trying to think here about... Heroic scientists And, uh, it's insane uh, The only one I can sort of think of Off the top of my head is, is Walter White And he cooks meth So, <laughs> it's that's as close to a heroic scientist That I can think of So yes, your point is very well taken <laughs> I still do uh, Maintain that I feel as though Beast is a, uh a lot of a lot of the writer's um points of view are being funneled into Beast. I, I do feel like that is something that is happening on top of it as well. And I could think back to uh, you know, the Matt Fraction run, uh was uh, was one where I felt like Beast was being uh was being what the writer wanted to to have said. Uh the some of the Bendis run, um yeah, I I still maintain that, that, that that's how I feel at least. Um you mentioned Stranger Things, which is one of the uh one of the bones of contention I have with my wife. She wants me to watch it with her, and I won't. Um, I watched part of the first season until I realized that it was ripping off, basically, like, the last three video games I'd played. It was, like, such a one-to-one ripoff. Um, I'm watching, and I had just played a game called Beyond Good... Oh, no, Beyond Two Souls. It was uh, one of those David Cage games, um, kind of like... Uh, heavy rain or that one that the Detroit one I think whatever the whatever the latest one was um but in it it is basically a 1 to 1 the the folks who who created stranger things ripped it off pretty much wholesale and then they went to the underneath part and I'm like wow now it's stra- now it's silent hill and my wife was like okay we're done watching this together cuz <laughs> you're just going to tear it up um, yeah, not, not, not too keen on that show, because I, I think it is uh, wildly overrated. But, I don't know, maybe later seasons it's uh, less of a ripoff and more of its own thing. But I probably won't find out. Um, now, back to uh, Damien. He says, As for the worst X-book ever, I've never read Mutant X. I have read a couple of the issues of Chuck Austin's run. I particularly remember the Havoc Polaris wedding two-parter as a huge waste of money. In fact, I probably would have to declare that worse, a worse story than Fallen Angel's. The truth is that Fallen Angels is a perfectly competent attempt at poetic, sexy, bad girl comic from 1995. It's a good version of a bad idea. The Chuck Austin run was a bad version of a terrible idea, and to this day, I wonder how it got published. I cannot see how the same editorial structure could allow Chuck Austin and Grant Morrison to be on the book simultaneously. And now, when when I mention that... A couple episodes back, I was definitely being a bit hyperbolic, uh, as I assume you were as well when you were talking about Fallen Angels number two. I try to keep things even-handed, and I'm sure most listeners might have noticed. Uh, even today, didn't love Fallen Angels number three, but I can't outright call it a bad comic. Uh, it's just perhaps the most un-me comic that I've tried to read in over you know quite some time. And I feel, if we're just taking things as X-books, right, um, it's probably the worst, you know, in in quotes here, X-book, in the terms that it just doesn't feel like an X-book. Now, the Chuck Austin run, warts and all, felt like an X-book. A bad <laughs> X-book. But an X-book, nonetheless. Fallen Angels does not. Fallen Angels, I maintain that this could have been released as... A lost, uh, you know, story that uh, what's his face Jim Valentino found in his desk that had a 1995 date on it, and, and we wouldn't we wouldn't think anything else. You know, we wouldn't think anything the wiser outside of you know ex characters being in the book, of course. It's funny that you mentioned the non-wedding of Havoc and Polaris. Uh, I feel like that's where the worm really started to turn on Chuck Austin while people, myself included, weren't enjoying his run. Especially when you know you pair it up with with the Morrison run. Um, I don't know where I'd put the Joe Casey run because uh, the Joe Casey run was another one of those divisive runs. The Joe C- Joe Casey was who Chuck Austin would replace, and I remember that being a pretty split uh, divide in the X fandom whether or not that was any good. I wasn't a fan of it. Um, I didn't like that uh, Joe Casey brought his Automatic Kafka um, partner, Ashley Wood, with him for some issues. Uh, Even Uncanny X-Men number 400, you can barely make a thing out of it because it has this this Ashley Wood art, which worked great in Automatic automatic Kafka, but for Uncanny X-Men number 400, no. No, 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 no. Um, But Chuck Austin came in and... uh, He had a little bit of fanfare when he came in, because he had just done uh, The U.S. War Machine for Max, uh, which wasn't great, but it wasn't awful. Um, And he was doing... uh, he did a two-parter in Ultimate X-Men. It was a Gambit story, which was fairly well-received. So by the time he came on to Uncanny X-Men, I think... I think people were... I don't want to say cautiously optimistic, maybe they were just optimistic. But the wedding of Havoc and Polaris was where the worm really started to turn and where people started to realize some of his uh, habits. Uh, people started to question and grumble about Austin perhaps having some uh, issues with the fairer sex, you know, with women issues. And if you reread his run, which I suppose I wouldn't recommend. His portrayal of women is kind of suspect. Um They're really only there to service men or to be insane. <laughs> and really no middle ground there. Really no middle ground. So Um I think that's where the worm started to turn and people were just like, wow, this guy is not worth our time. Even then I was a completionist, so I kept up with the whole thing. Um And... Yeah, it wasn't a great run. It really wasn't. Uh, I remember they brought in Kia Asamiya to do the art, and everybody had like these beaks, you know, these tremendously pointy noses, and it just was not uh, like Angel was made like a like a Bishonen character if you're familiar with the Bashōnan manga, the pretty boy manga. But Asamiya's art isn't pretty, so it just looked like a really bad f- version of of an attempted. Pretty boy, so Not great, not great Um, Now Mutant X You said you haven't read it And I wouldn't wish it on anybody But At the same time It's kind of one of those books That you almost have to see to believe Because If you question How the Chuck Austin run got published If you read Mutant X Oh man, you're you're gonna wonder How how this got published (laughs) Because it was, at the, at the at, toward the end there, like the second, actually only the beginning is decent. Everything after that, you're going to question how this made it past an editor's desk, how somebody agreed to pencil it, how anybody agreed to sign their name to it. I mean, I mentioned it before, Howard Mackey wrote it, and he had to write the, his next X-Men book under a pseudonym because it was that poorly received. But, uh yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um Back to Damien. He says, On to the issue at hand, and this is, of course, Excalibur number three. It remains underwhelming. Why is Shogo a dragon? Because. Huh? Why is Richter unable to control his powers? Reasons. It just feels a bit pointless. And, you're right. It totally does. These are very, very convenient bits and bobs being sprinkled in, which, you know, I've made this, uh, I've made this criticism before and I think I've done so with X-Force. It feels to me a bit like these stories are being written in reverse. And again, nothing inherently wrong with that, but I feel like if you're going to do that, the seams shouldn't be showing quite as much as they do. It feels here like everything is in service of a greater a greater good or a greater point. And it all feels very, very meticulously backwards written. If that makes any sense um, to me, it feels like you know it's almost like a magician doing a doing a uh, doing a trick, but holding the instructions as they do it. So like you see all the steps, you know, um, you see all the seams, and by the time it all pays off, it feels like it's it's been telegraphed. So I, I mean, we talked about the cerebro sword. It's like okay, that would be novel if we didn't see it coming. Um, or, uh, but then again, I could be wrong Who knows <laughs> uh, Damien wraps up his message with I'm fascinated for tomorrow Which was New Mutants 3 I can't wait to hear your reaction to New Mutants number 3 I know I genuinely thought you'd I'd bought the wrong book And yeah, oh boy <laughs> uh, By now uh, You might already know how I received New Mutants number 3 And I gotta say You were 100% dead on It almost feels like I picked up the wrong book Or at least the wrong issue Of the right one Because this one came out of nowhere uh, Knocked me right off my feet With like how much huh was in this issue Uh, I was ready for (laughs) Deathbird I did not get Deathbird And I never thought I'd be disappointed not to get Deathbird But here we are Uh, Thank you so much for your thoughts Damien It's always a pleasure to hear from you Uh, Next we have a uh, message from Jason Uh, Now this is regarding New Mutants number 3 And he says, you're right, we've already seen a plethora and a half of power dampening already. Uh, I know that the real reason is that the writers can't have the muties easily win every fight. In-universe, I can rationalize that by saying, hey, given that the mutants have gone and gotten all uppity lately, one expected response by all sorts of human groups would be to pour resources into anti-mutant tech. Does it make sense for this group of hicks to have access to that tech? I don't know It'll depend on who these Hicks turn out to be And whom they're connect- and to whom they're connected So yes, this is an excellent point And uh, if we're doing like headcanon here it's, it's pitch perfect, right? I mean, that makes all the sense in the world uh, This is a new landscape And the mutants are You know, they're flexing right now You know, they are flexing their power And they are not being shy About the fact that they are In many ways, superior you know, um, this is this is the whole tone and tenor of the Dawn of X run Is that the mutants are, they have the upper hand So yes, it makes perfect sense for all sorts of human groups Human scientists, human engineers to try to find And, and I made this reference last time um, We had a ba- power dampening bit That I, I said it felt like all the villains in the DC Universe Were suddenly carrying a chunk of kryptonite now, Batman has a kryptonite ring, which makes sense, right? That's just in case. So I could definitely see this as being one of those, uh, you know, in case of fire, break glass sort of situations where we need these power dampening things, just in case. Makes perfect sense. I don't have enough faith in creative to, <laughs> to think that that's why they did it. I feel like it's still, it's still kind of lazy. Um. Uh, you know your 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 point notwithstanding, and how much sense that makes, I feel like the writers should be a little bit more creative, and they shouldn't all be leaning onto the same thing at the same time. Now, if it turns out that these hillbillies are working for Zeno, hey, that makes sense, right? It could very well be that. Um, I don't remember if the Orcus people have power dampening things. I would assume they do, but uh, yeah, it just seems. It seems like we're going to this well Just a little bit too often And uh, I don't want to say it's Law of Diminishing Returns Because it's not the most interesting thing In the first place To have our mutants try to work around Not having their powers But uh, I don't know Maybe I'm not reading these In the progression that I should be Because I'm doing these episodes right now Every day Um, So I am reading a book every day So instead of waiting month to month and seeing a power-dampening thing, you know, once every couple of weeks. I'm seeing it every day. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, hail on a tin roof for me, where it's just like, oh, God, again? <laughs> and that's, I think a lot of my complaints about these, uh, these books are a result of the, the manner in which I'm receiving them. Uh, the frequency in which I'm reading them Things like the double page spread of creds that, that gets under my skin because I'm seeing them every day The info pages are just like Okay, let's move on And here we are with power dampening So, I don't know <laughs> I'm just talking to talk right now But back to Jason's message He says, by the way, I know it's a cause lost worse than the literal meaning of the word literally But the phrase should really be power damping Not dampening Damping means to reduce the amplitude of a wave by draining off some of its energy. Dampening means to make slightly moist. <laughs> That's true. I don't. I'm, now, now you have me second guessing myself. I'm, did the books call them dampenings or did they call them dampings? And I'm just calling them dampenings. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've always just called them dampenings. Um, uh, Jason wraps up with, uh, I had a high school physics teacher who impressed the distinction on us students by spraying us with a water bottle like we were cats who had jumped up on the mantle again anytime we used the incorrect term. Now that's what I call pedagogy. Easy for me to say. Pedagogy. Pedagogy? I I know I used to be able to say that word. I don't know what it is now. But that is a very good point. (laughs) That's... It's funny because I think earlier this episode I said uh, I said that I'm a prolific creator of content, and prolific is one of those words that I think people don't really know the meaning of. Um, I think people when they hear the word uh, prolific, they think there's an automatic assertion or assertion or allusion to someone being really good at something or something being of top quality. You know, oh, they're so prolific. When it's like, no, I just. <laughs> I just spit into a microphone every single day. That's what makes me prolific. Quality is, you know, I'll leave that to other people and uh and uh and if and if uh, if you don't think I am I, I I apologize. But uh thank you so much for sharing Jason. Um I did respond a bit on Twitter to your message, but uh, I I wanted to give fuller thoughts or at least more rambly ones here on the air. So thank you so much for uh for reaching out and following along. It's always a treat hearing from you. And finally, we have a short little thing from Andrew Our friend Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter He says, I'm about to listen to all the number threes at work today Minus Fallen Angels, but that's fine And, uh, I just wanted to include that because I love hearing that I love, uh, hearing that, that folks will have me in their ear all day <laughs> As scary a thought as that is Because I literally have me in my head all day And it's, uh, it's not always the best thing But, uh no that means so much to me that uh that people enjoy this content uh, enough to uh to subject themselves to my voice for uh, extended periods of time um i did uh, respond to him and uh warned him that these number 3s were a little lacking um <laughs> and he had a very nice comment in return he said that uh he said that he just he enjoys the commentary more, so I, that means the world to me. That really brightened my day, so thank you so much, Andrew. Um, and now, hopefully, you're listening to the final the the Fallen Angels uh, episode here, and you'll see that uh, the quality of the number threes did not uh, did not soar to the skies. So, <laughs> fingers crossed, the number fours will be better, but we will uh, we will find that out soon enough. But that's where we'll leave it today. Uh, I want to thank. Everybody for uh, listening and reaching out. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. You can find me at Chris's on Infinite Earths and xlapsed dot chris's on infinite earths com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Nineties X Men, and uh, I also started a Tumblr thing. I don't know what Tumblr is, but I uh, I realized that I could share links there, so I have a tumbling page here. <laughs> it is. It's under Xlapsed, so I don't know how you search on Tumblr. I tried searching a little bit, and I couldn't find anything. So I think that's something I might just be too old for. Uh, But eh, it's an avenue, so we might be able to find some new ears and some new hearts to reach that way. We will see. Um, The audio archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find thousands of hours for, hopefully, your uh, listening pleasure. So those are there. And they're just waiting for your ears. So, uh, one more time, I want to thank everyone for listening. 30 episodes, a nice round number, right? That's uh, pretty cool. So, thank you all for sharing your time with me, for sharing your ears with me, and uh, for being there for me. I really, really appreciate it. But uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 35 of X-Lapsed. And uh, I've made the joke a time or two about how uh, this might be the shortest episode on record. But uh, oof, it is... Um, well, it's Fallen Angels Day. And I am having a heck of a time trying to think of a single thing to say about the book we're about to discuss. <laughs> there is a... Uh, oh, this is a... Uh, the very definition of, a uh, part four of six This is just a, another Nothing happening issue In a nothing happening series Um, I suppose I I could tell you the story about how I got my uh, my first ever COVID test this morning I got swabbed, uh, but that You know, I, I guess that, that Might be a little bit more interesting than this Uh, I drove in and they swabbed My nose and I left and that, that Might be more interesting than reading this book But, uh Let's get right into it here. Uh, this is Fallen Angels, Volume 2, Number 4. Had a cover date of February 2020. The story is called Shikat- Shikatsu, written by Brian Hill, with art by Simon kadransky Colors Frank Diarmada. letters VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits Robinson White Zebulski. Cover price $3.99, went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now, we open in Flashback Land. Uh, This is the uh, Japan area of Flashback Land, where young Quinan is looking on while someone close to her, well, I'm assuming they were close to her, dies of poisoning. Now, she's with an adult who tells her that the dying man let his guard down due to believing that the meeting he attended with others was uh, in peace. You see, uh, peace isn't to be trusted, because uh, that's where the death hides. And I say, uh, we might want to run and grab our umbrella, but this time we ain't dodging fallen shoes, we're we're dodging anvils. We hop to the present, and Quanon and X-23 are staking out a trio of apothefected children. Now, worth noting, they've got white eyes instead of black, though I'm not sure that means a damn thing here, I don't know. Uh, Laura reminds Quanan that this whole shebang is all about her So a path Overclock, all of it It's all about Quanan, Which I believe makes this the fourth issue in a row where we're finding this news out Laura also tells Psylocke that she shouldn't be trusting any of her visions Because anyone can see that she's being led somewhere Then they talk about, like, trust for about a page and a half And it's all very hackneyed X-23 asks if maybe Betsy Braddock might be of, exi- of assistance here, considering that she, you know, lived inside Quanon's body for a while. Uh, though, I mean, considering the Marvel sliding timeline, <sighs> Betsy's inhabitants of Quanon's body might have been just like for a long weekend at this point. Who knows? Uh, Quanon does not appreciate the suggestion and tells Laura to never, ever, ever bring up Braddock's name again. Next, Laura, who really seems to want to make conversation with this boring lunatic, says she's worried about Cable. She gets the old, you know, Cable's a big boy, he can handle himself, reply. Then, two pages of credits, and our roll call, and it's, a, uh, it's just our same three characters, Psylocke, X-23, and Cable. Speaking of Cable, we rejoin him, wherever the hell he is, and he's still strapped to an apparatus of some sort, sort, you know, he's spread-eagle, like, stuck to something. <laughs> It's basically how we see Cable now He looks to be screaming Unless the wall behind him has some of the lousiest graffiti on it I've ever seen He's addressed by that spawn-looking character Wearing a, you know, a black hefty bag uh, Who we got to look at at the end of last issue And, uh, the old hefty phantom here Talks about how the mutants checked out on the world Which might allow for the rest of the world to begin to evol- evolve Haven't we heard that somewhere before? I don't think it was an issue of this book, but, uh It might have been, but I know we heard this somewhere Where somebody had mentioned how When the mutants left, the rest of the world Had an opportunity to evolve It may have been this book, I I just I don't remember I just know this isn't the first time we're hearing such a suggestion Uh, The hefty bag Phantom then injects Cable with something? I, I think he was Injecting him, the art is doing a really Poor job of conveying What we're supposed to be seeing Though in fairness The script isn't being all that helpful either Now, this injection or whatever is intended to be delivered to Psylocke. And we get some spoo about her losing a child, but the hefty phantom says she has another kid out there, but this one isn't made of flesh and bones. This one is made of zeros and ones. It's, duh, a path. Now, Psylocke is called the Mother of God, and we find out that God only wants her love. And, uh... I don't even think I need a spoon to gag on after a line like that. Uh, We hop back to the stakeout. Psylocke grows bored of just waiting for these white-eyed kids to do something. Uh, Yeah, tell me about it. And so she shouts out to them. They reply, causing X-23 to instinctively go snicked. Psylocke calls her off, tells her to calm down. One of the white-eyed children starts talking, and... Well, duh, it's the voice of a poth, just like they did in the barn, what was it... Thirteen or fourteen issues ago? Ugh. Uh, they play a little bit of let's make a deal here. Now, in exchange for Psylocke simply listening to what he has to say, these three white-eyed children will be spared. Oh, and also Cable won't be killed either. Um, you remember when Cable was like this big, tough, like, gruff dude who, like, nobody would screw with? Yeah, me either. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this kid Cable. Uh, Psylocke extends her hand and touches the middle, white-eyed kid. Here come the visions, and, uh... Oof. If this was hard to follow before... Maybe I'm just dense, but it gets even more so here. Psylocke flashes back to an earlier assassination mission she was sent on by an old woman. I think. The art here does uh, this bit of story absolutely zero favors. Though, again, in fairness, I couldn't imagine what the script Kadransky even received here looked like, you know. Um, the gist, as I understand it, and I could be completely wrong, is that Quinan was put up to kill this this being, you know, this thing that would go on to become Apoth. And uh, when confronted from behind a closed door, Apoth used a child's voice to beg for its life. And so, uh, Psylocke, Revanche, Quanon, whoever she is, she spared him. And then over the years that followed, Apoth, quote, grew in the dark. After spending a couple of picoseconds reading the Bible, Apoth came to the realization that he was a god. Quote, Lucifer in defiance of the fire. Quote, the voice that guided Noah. Quote, I am the flood. <sighs> Hill's ninth grade creative writing teacher would be so proud. So, Apoth suggests that Quan'an's love saved him And so, she is his mother, just as God wants Another thing this God wants is Cable The perfect union of man and machine Apoth wants to evolve the world, I guess, in Cable's image He suggests that this union will give the world a perfect peace Apoth then releases Quan'an from her projections And, as promised, spares the white-eyed children Psylocke slumps to the ground, but is then haunted by sounds. Sounds that only she can hear. She then looks up and sees something, which is something only she can see. Wow, didn't we already do this in the other Betsy book? With the druids and stuff? I don't know. (laughs) What she sees here is a glowing, humanoid bald man. And uh, I'm not sure if it's supposed to look like Professor X, or maybe I'm just like profiling all bald men in X-Men books as being Xavier-like. That's our cliffhanger. Um... But we wrap up with a couple of info pages which transcribe a phone interview with someone named S. Nakamoto. And they're talking about artificial intelligence, and it's uh, wildly boring. Uh, at least it was the only info page bit in the issue. But, uh... Yeah. That was Fallen Angels number four. Next, we will wrap up the Dawn of X number fours with... X-Men. X-Men usually leads the charge, but this time it's going to anchor the, uh, the line. So... Yeah, let's, uh, I'd say let's talk about this, but like I alluded to earlier, I'm, uh, I'm running out of things to say about this book. Uh, I think I said it last time uh, that we discussed Fallen Angels, but X-Lapsed is a free show. You know, nobody pays anything to listen to this show, but when it comes to discussing this book, I still feel like I'm ripping you all off. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm robbing you of precious time. Uh, this is just another... Just a nothing-happening title. Another nothing-happening issue and a nothing-happening title. And, uh, to be honest, if I hadn't already spent, like, a couple hours mocking up the X-Lapsed album art for the next dozen or so episodes, I'd be tempted just to push through Fallen Angels over the course of the next couple of episodes. You know, just so we never, ever, ever have to discuss it ever again. But... I've already got all of them numbered, and it was a pain in the butt putting the pieces together, so we'll have to wait. Um, What is there to possibly say about this issue? Other than the fact that uh, I didn't like it, which I guess is something, not a whole heck of a lot. Um, We're really just going through the motions here. We're getting very little in the way of new information. I'm really starting to think that this entire series could have probably been fit into a regular-sized one-shot. And by regular size, I mean like 18 to 20 story pages in total. There ain't ain't jack going on in this book. Um, This is being executed extremely poorly. Uh, The pacing is ridiculous, and the payoffs are non-existent. I can't believe we still have two more issues of this to cover. You know, I can usually say a thing or two positive about the art when it comes to Fallen Angels, but... With this issue, I feel like the storytelling was kind of all over the place. It was hard to tell what was what, uh, especially when it came to that scene where Quinan and Apoth, you know, share a mind for that uh, assassination attempt flashback. I mean, if you look at these pages, are we looking at Quanan the whole time? In certain panels, she's got long hair, in others it looks short. The costume silhouette changed a bit, too. Is this just supposed to be a little bit nebulous, or is it, are we looking at another person altogether? And these are questions I'd ask if I give a crap. But I can't say that I do, um, because it doesn't matter. I'm hoping, like, really, really hoping, that there's an upswing in quality of these Dawn of X books. And I mean, like, soon. (laughs) Like, today, tomorrow, (laughs) yesterday. I mean, outside of Marauders and that new mutant story we haven't been allowed to read for the past few issues, there is precious little to get excited for here um fingers crossed that business picks up and picks up soon because yeah, this is rough. This is a slog. Um when you have a line that's 6 books deep and four and a half of them are kind of average to middling to in my opinion just pretty bad. That's uh that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that doesn't make for a good reading experience. It doesn't make for a good uh, me talking about it experience because uh, I know the internet is a cynical place and I know that you know <laughs> the angry reviewer is kind of a thing that has existed for you know 15, 20 years now where you just you just talk a lot of spoo about, uh, about things and, and try to be as uh, negative and reactionary as possible. but I don't want to be that guy. I really don't want to be that guy. I want to be excited for these books. I'm yearning for the uh, the days of Hoxpox now, where I was excited for every single day. I was excited for every single issue, every single episode. There was just so much that we were learning. Um, I think uh, Jason put it best. He said that Hickman had set us up for the extraordinary, and uh, Dawn of X does not deliver on that very, very much at all. And... I feel like we are, uh, we're muddling. You know, we're muddling between events. And we're just waiting for, as I'm sure, with the amount of sword imagery we've seen here, this is all building to, uh, to, you know, X of tens. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, we are, we're just, uh, you know, we're just paddling here. We're just trying to keep afloat. And we're treading water not a whole heck of a lot's happening. Uh, that's noteworthy, or that is building on any sort of foundation. Um, yeah, we we need we need improvement, and we need improvement. Yesterday, uh, I'm gonna vamp for a bit here and uh, flip through the old short box here to see what we have next here in this issue of X-Men. And okay, I see. Professor X, Magneto, and Apocalypse All wearing suits on the cover So maybe we're not going to get the old ladies again Which is a good thing So I don't know what will happen with the old ladies And I can't say as though I care So hopefully Next episode we talk about something A little bit more interesting Than the old ladies who steal plants And uh, fallen angels But Before we get to that Let's do a little bit of dipping into the mailbag here. There's going to be a short one here. Just one message from Damien. And this time he's talking about Excalibur number four. And he says, This is definitely the issue where Excalibur started to lose me. I think I commented before, but I strongly believe that Americans should not be allowed to write comics set in the UK. And uh, it is uh, funny that uh, you say that, because this is the first issue of Excalibur uh, as a as an American. That I enjoyed, because uh, it didn't take place in other world, And I don't understand enough about the UK, as we're going to get to in a moment To where I, you know, I don't know what's what <laughs> I'm not very worldly I, I probably couldn't tell you about a lot of stuff that goes on in my own country, let alone others But uh, I just appreciated it because we got, to, we got to see some of these characters We got to, you know, be sort of reintroduced to some of these characters who were just... Kind of serving the purpose of you know stirring the otherworld pot rather than actually being you know three-dimensional characters. So I, I, I liked it on the, uh, by that regard here. Um, but like I said during the the episode where we discussed Excalibur before, I can't say that I'm looking forward to what's to come because it feels like we're going right back to otherworld. So I guess this was the calm before the storm. Uh, back to Damien, he says, As you say, an explosion near Buckingham Palace would definitely involve a police response. My, my experience is that you can't get within a mile of the palace without passing many go- gun-toting police. And don't forget, armed police are un- unusual in the UK. So yeah, that, that scene did feel very, very strange here. We've got Gambit charging and exploding a bottle. And it's right outside the palace gates. Like, literally, you can, like, Gambit could have thrown it over the gate. You know, that's how close he was to, uh, to the palace itself. And all it did was, like, foment this riot between protesters and the mutants. Didn't see any police interjection. Didn't, po- didn't see any anybody getting pepper sprayed. Nobody pulled any weapons. It was just a little brawl that uh, went away when Betsy came out of the uh, out of the palace. And she's like, okay, we're good to go now. You guys are officially Excalibur. Let's go. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Not that it matters, as the Queen's role is largely ceremonial. Really, Betsy should have been at 10 Downing Street, or liaising, liaising with the security services. Honestly, it's not far off me writing a story where Captain America finds out that there's a threat to the USA and sending him to tell a bald eagle. That's funny um, Yeah, I wondered that too Because I know that, you know the. I mean, isn't the queen like 300 years old right now? I, I don't know that she can really Be all that effective in governing um, And as, you know, an uneducated American I just see the whole royal family as A lot of, uh, as you said here, ceremonialism It's just, these are just figure roles to, I guess royalty is just so ingrained in the culture, and this is me not knowing anything about anything. But it seems like that might be the thing where it's like royalty is so so loomed so large in the history of the culture there that uh, that they just keep it going out of tradition or or out of ceremony. So yeah, it's uh, it was weird that Betsy went there. I wonder if Teeny Howard. Knows that <laughs> Or if Or if You know Maybe she realizes That she's writing a comic That a lot of You know Ignorant Americans Are gonna read And we don't know The difference between Any of this stuff You know So it's like Oh you know Chris in Arizona Is gonna see that uh, They talk to the queen And he's gonna think Yeah that's fine <laughs> Sounds right to me um. Now Damien wraps up with, uh, talking to which, I could try to explain the difference between the different names for my country, but we have deliberately kept it confusing and are legally prevented from letting Americans know the truth. I'm allowed to tell you that I live in England and Great Britain and the UK and Europe, but I don't think that helps. Anywho, anyway, tootle pip and cheerio. And no, that doesn't help. <laughs> but I do understand the rules and I, and, I, and I and I respect them. I respect the laws of your country and uh, not being able to to tell me what's what. Uh, it's uh, funny, um, Reggie and I did an episode of Weird Comics History way back in the day, probably early 2016, where uh, it was a short little segment that we did on another program, and what we were covering that episode was, uh, this was a DC Comics-themed uh, show, so we were talking about little weird little bits of history in D.C. And we talked about, you know, the so-called British invasion of the uh, mid to late 80s. So you had folks like, uh, you know, uh, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, um, Peter Milligan, Grant Morrison. You had all these uh, these Western European writers come in. And I think we even said that, uh, that Morrison was from the U.K., even though he's from Scotland. So... I think in our show notes there I have the the mea culpa on that, but uh, I remember we I think we said I think we said England sometimes, Great Britain sometimes, and UK other times, realizing that at least one of those has to be right one of the times we said it. So we we tried to cover our bases because Reggie was a uh, was a wildly worldly fellow and uh, and a brilliant individual. And uh, when I asked him what the difference was, he couldn't explain it to me. And uh, when he couldn't explain it to me, that was like, okay, well, then I, I feel a lot less dumb not knowing. <laughs> if Reggie doesn't know, but uh, but yes, I, I appreciate the uh, the laws of uh, of your of your island nation, and uh, <laughs> and I will not pressure you to uh, to let me into the club. So I, I do have Irish ancestry. Uh, you know, Sheehan is my my you know. My uh, last name, so yeah, I got a little bit Irish there, but uh, I understand. I understand, but uh, thank you so much for reaching out, and uh, I, I definitely appreciate your um, your point of view on this story. You know, taking place in in either England, the UK, or great and or Great Britain, because uh, I think you're offering this uh, very fascinating to me um, perspective. Where, like I said earlier, here, if Betsy says she talked to the Queen, I'm like, cool, okay, everything, everything makes sense. But uh, maybe, you know, living over there, would be like, well, she probably should have talked to someone else, and that makes sense. So that that's really cool. So thank you so much for reaching out. And uh, uh, you know, before we go into uh, the end game here, I do want to apologize for how negative this episode probably sounded. Um, I kind of feel like we're getting a lot of issues in a row where the the quality just isn't there. Um the past 3 episodes we had we had an X-Force issue that really put the forced in X-Force. Uh we had a new mutants issue which was also <laughs> less than great. And here we have uh, Fallen Angels, so it's we not our our batting average is, is not uh, not great at the moment. So like I said earlier, hopefully this comes back around um, I am ignorant to what's to come You know, I don't know If there's anything, any notable stories on the way I don't know if there are any Big story beats on the way um, I do remember getting some mail saying that You know, certain issues of certain books Had, you know, pivotal uh, You know, post-Hox Pox revelations And kind of built on that foundation So there will be some stuff I just, I don't remember which issues they were off the top of my head, but I'm looking forward to seeing some stuff. <laughs> Especially because yeah, these haven't been a these haven't been a fun few episodes for me here. Um kind of a kind of a slog. And uh eh, fingers crossed we'll hope for the best, right? So uh <laughs> if you'd like to reach out and tell me what a horrible curmudgeon I am and how horribly negative I am about these brilliant books. Uh, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory History at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes and the stuffs at Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. I recently covered another oddity over there. I covered the Obnoxio the Clown versus the X Men one shot from 1983, which introduced us to a mutant character called I Scream, like E Y E hyphen Scream. Uh, it's his only appearance, and uh. His mutant power is that he could change himself into any flavor of ice cream he so desires. And I thought that was fascinating because 1983, there were probably a handful of mutants. You know, a a few dozen at most. And one of them was Ice Cream. And uh, we covered that other 1983 book with Equus. And uh, yeah, we had only, uh, we probably had less than 50 mutants. And two of them were Equus and Ice Cream. I just thought that was kinda of cool. So I covered that, the obnoxio one shot and also the uh, uncanny X-Men at the State Fair of Texas uh, one shots. So uh, those are there at Chris is on for folks who want to see some weird comics. Uh, you can also check out the X Lapsed sub page at XLapsed. Chris is on You can find us on Facebook at nineties X-Men, find us on the Tumble at the Tumble. Um, also, the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. A lot of stuff cooking there, so uh, there'll be there'll be a cup, at least a few new programs starting up over the course of the next uh, next handful of weeks. Just uh, lining up some lining up with uh, some co-hosts and uh, trying to trying to actually sit down, sit still for long enough to to mock up a schedule, which is. Something that I have a big problem with, but uh, <laughs> I think that's where we'll leave it. Um, it is worth noting that with this issue of Fallen Angels, we finish our third of four uh, reading order checklists that appear in the back of the House House of X, Powers of X, Dawn of X books. So this is my this is how I'm kind of navigating my way through here. I'm going strictly down this line. We have one more, uh, one more list. Uh, that has, I think, 11 books on it. But after that, Marvel stopped including a list, a reading order list, in the back of the House of X, Powers of X, Dawn of X era books. So we're going to be kind of flying by the seat of our pants at that point. Uh, Unfortunately, the internet has conflicting and contradictory reading orders, and I'm trying to keep it as, uh, as genuine to the release dates as possible here. My only issue will be like if say on a particular day we had an issue of Marauders, Excalibur, and X Force all come out, I just don't know which order those would be read in. So if anybody has any kind of interest in helping me out with that, let me know. And uh, as I have a list of everything that's come out, and uh, and if you if anybody wants to help me put those in order, that's fantastic. Um, we also have a couple of mini series coming up. We got X Men, Fantastic Four, and we have the Empire uh, Colon X Men books. Don't know if we should do those all in a shot, like do four days in a row of those just to get them out of the way, or if we should just do them as they come out. Uh, So if anybody has any thoughts on that, please let me know because uh, your wish is my command because I haven't the foggiest idea what I'm doing. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it. One last huge thank you, and sorry for how negative this episode was. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for uh, sharing your time and your... Your audio apparatus with me. And uh, till next time when we discuss X-Men number four, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Welcome to episode 41 of x lapsed where uh, we could probably cue that uh, Tiffany song because I, I think we're alone now. Um, this is Fallen Angels Day, so uh, only you know only a handful of people are uh, actually bothering to hit play today because uh, hey, it's Fallen Angels Day. I'm trying to think if there's uh, anything I want to say since I can pretty much say anything today. Um, uh, what can we talk about? What can we talk about? We could talk about. Uh, I hear there's an election coming up. But uh, that actually might have less substance than the book we're about to discuss, so maybe maybe we just won't talk about that. Uh, uh, see any good movies lately? I, I usually don't see movies, but, uh, but I did make an exception. I, I did watch uh, El Camino, uh, the Breaking Bad movie, because we finished that show up, and uh, I figured, hey, what the heck. And you know what? El Camino is very much like Fallen Angels, in that it only has, like, I don't know, Half hour worth of story, but it stretched out over Like, what, three and a half, four hours Uh, it was decent enough But, uh, there are Similarities there, right What else can we talk about Ah Well Me and Chris Bailey had a, a two hour long Conversation with, uh, uh Brent Anderson today of uh, Astro City And Strikeforce Moratory fame, which was uh, Really, really fun, really great time And that was uh, something we'll be sharing on this channel in the next few days So look forward to that That's going to be a a good time here But, uh, hmm Alright, let's talk about Fallen Angels Today, Fallen Angels, volume 2, number 5 of 6, thankfully March 2020 cover date is called Sensei, written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Kudransky Colors by Frank Diarmada, letters by VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Robinson White-Cebolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale January 15th, 2020. So, we open with a nine-panel grid, which we all know is the purest sign of comics writing genius. All one has to do is look at all the uh, 10 out of 10s Tom King keeps collecting by abusing the format to see that. Anywho, it's here that Cable and X-23 are rounding out their unnamed, unsanctioned Fallen Angels team With Husk and Bling Or is it Bling, because her name seems to include an exclamation point? I don't know Question, how did Cable get back to Krakoa? Uh, last time we saw him, he was strapped to something by the Hefty Bag Phantom <laughs> Maybe that's just a shoe that'll drop later Not that I really care Roll call X-23. Bling! Husk, Cable, Psylocke, Mr. Sinister, and Magneto. Then two pages of people taking credit for producing this. From here, we join Psylocke as she's meditating in the vegetation. X-23 sidles over to her to inform her that they now have a more fleshed-out team. Quinan uses this as an opportunity to once again kvetch about how nobody cares about her on Krakoa. You see, she credits X-23's reputation on people actually agreeing to join them since... You know, she doesn't have one herself. I tell you what, I think she's wrong here. I'm gonna I'm gonna dispute this. Uh she has a reputation, it's just not a good one, because she's you know, an absolute bore for starters and uh wildly unpleasant uh you know, for the rest. Now the conversation shifts into I am fourteen and this is deep territory, with a discussion on whether or not they believe in God. I'll spare you the details. Suffice it to say, Quinan isn't exactly isn't sure exactly what this apoth they're dealing with actually is. All X twenty three knows is that she didn't see the vision from last issue's cliffhanger scene. We follow Psylocke to Bar Sinister, where he checks in, where she checks in on his progress figuring out what that cyber doohickey the Black Eyed Kids are wearing is. I don't remember handing, I don't remember her handing one over though. Uh, this series has a way of causing me to glaze over completely, so I very well might have missed it. Though, again, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't and this scene was just pulled out of a hat. Whatever the case, Sinister needs to try it out, and it looks like Quinan is going to be his willing guinea pig. He warns that it'll likely result in extreme pain. Luckily, Psylocke just finished listening to a My Chemical Romance album, so she's ready to go. Now, he pops the socket onto her dome, and we hop into digital flashback land, I think. She's in Dubai, and the hefty bag Phantom is there, and not a whole lot of this makes any sense but at least it wasted a couple of pages. And I suppose it might tell our team where they need to go for the final boss fight. Quinan comes out of it and is asked how she felt being disconnected and whole at the same time. Well, this isn't an altogether new sensation for her, because did you know that Betsy Braddock once occupied her body? Have we not mentioned that in the last three pages? You might have forgotten. We then flash back to a time where Quinan kills her sensei, we get plenty of worm and butterfly references here, which makes me think that this might have been a mercy killing just to get out of this book. Then two pages of poetic prose. Nope. Back to Krakoa. Betsy and Quan'an practice their sword posing or whatever in synchronized form. Quan'an thinks to herself that she can't blame Betsy for everything that's happened and that she'll forgive her just as soon as she can no longer feel her. Because, uh, well, because did did you know that Betsy once occupied her body? This is brand new information, so I wouldn't blame you if you didn't know. Elsewhere in Krakoa, Cable is putting their new recruits through their paces. Husk tears off her skin, revealing a bulletproof layer underneath, and Cable just blasts the bejesus out of her, but she's perfectly fine. Bling then sidles up to Cable and rips his gun in half. She's apparently made out of diamonds, which makes ripping things a lot easier, I guess. Fair enough. X-23 then challenges the newbies to try and land a punch on her, and naturally, they're unable to. Psylocke then approaches to suck any life that this scene might have had right off the page. She promises to protect, protect the four youngsters as, as they leave heaven and they fight through hell. I wonder why she didn't protect us from having to read this. Uh, they do the all-for-one, one-for-all bit, and we're off to the races. But first, Psylocke stops to chat up Magneto, who tells us about his time in the camps as a boy. He gives her his full blessing to go take out a path and to show the rest of the world that mutantkind is still watching over them. He then magnetically nyoinks a jet out of the ground and sends the five some on their merry mutant way. We wrap up with them approaching Dubai, and Psylocke proclaims that Mother is here, which is cringy as hell. Maybe not quite as cringy as the cover to Cable and X-Force No. 7, cover dated June 2013, which featured Cyclops and the word Daddy's Home in gigantic text. My wife actually uh, saw that cover. She took a look at it, and I'm pretty sure she lost whatever respect she might have had left from my comic's habit. So, yeah, this is cringy, just not that cringy. That's where we leave it, and we have one issue of this to go. But next time, we'll be wrapping up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 5s with X-Men. So, let's talk about this. I guess we're gearing up for our final battle with Apoth? This is just so poorly paced um, We spent four entire issues Which is like, generously speaking 80 or so pages Having the same revelations over and over again Also faux deep conversations And mostly meaningless flashbacks um, We really only needed the flashback Where Quinan had a baby taken from her The rest seemed to just be opportunities For Quinan to stake her claim on butterfly imagery And I'm sure Mariah Carey Is probably off weeping somewhere here, in our, thankfully, penultimate chapter, we get a new we get some new team members. And they get a whole, like, what, three pages devoted to them? I mean, it's husk and bling, so we're not really dealing with heavy hitters here, but still. It's finally something new in this book, and at least, you know, at least give us a little bit of time with these kids to enjoy pages that don't have Psylocke on them. Uh, am I, I can't be alone in really disliking this character, right? I... I I don't dislike her in that she's a bad guy or anything She's just so boring And one note uh, Like everything that really needs to be said about her Could be fit into a single paragraph On an info page How many times do we need to be reminded That Betsy occupied her, occupied her body for a time How many times Do we need to hear that she has no friends on Krakoa How many times Does she need to have the slightly different takes On the exact same conversations With her supporting casts <sighs> This is a character who doesn't have the presence to shoulder a backup story in a random issue of X-Men Unlimited, much less an entire miniseries. Or, God forbid, several miniseries, if they decide to bring this one back down the line, because I'm not sure if folks are following along the post-X of Tens solicits, but it looks like they're trying their damnedest to bloat this line to the point where it's going to pop. They're adding titles left and right here. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if we get another run with Fallen Angels. Um, Then again, I mean, they could all die next issue for all I know. Who knows? So basically, I just spent a whole lot of time saying that I don't have anything to say about this issue. Sorry about that. (laughs) But uh, I guess we could take solace in the fact that there's only one of these left to go. Um, I can't place the blame completely on the creative team because they don't have much to work with here. This Psylocke character sucks. This is not a fun character to follow. This is not a fun character to spend time with. This is just not a fun character. I could, I would imagine it's not a fun character to write. Um, so I can't put the blame on the creative team here. It's just this is what they're given to work with. It's it's got to be a uh, it's got to be a tough task. I, I mean I don't know how they stay awake to write it, but that's just me. I think that's all I have to say. <laughs> about Fallen Angels number 5. Let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here today. This might be a really short episode. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about Excalibur number 5. He says, This was the last issue of Excalibur that I bought, and I remembered none of it. It is genuinely all over the place and makes no sense. And thank you, because me being me, and me being a guy who second guesses every word I say... I was a little afraid that I might be the only one to think that this issue was, was quite the mess that it was. So I'm really happy to hear that I'm not alone. I, I thought that might have been a, a a wildly hot take that I had in that it just felt... I, I referred to it as a Dagwood sandwich. Just so many layers, and none of them... You could taste none of them, you know? It was just uh, very much all over the place. Uh, Damien continues... On to your comments It's weird how we see other countries It's interesting that you knew about the IRA Solely from Web of Spider-Man and Action Comics Weekly I bought both those books when they came out And I thought they were a little tenured And I tell you what I, I just read that Action Comics Weekly uh, Nightwing and Speedy story last year For my Action Comics Daily project At the blog And yeah, it is it is wildly tenured Um I gotta say, I don't remember much about the Web of Spider-Man one I'm... I, I'm not sure I even read it But uh, I believe they delayed it a few times Resulting in some Like really, really boring fill-ins Which I mean, if you're familiar with Web of Spider-Man That's basically what that book would become Like 90% of it was It seemed to be fill-ins That they didn't have a creative team for the longest time It was just It was like a It was like a book in need of creators You know, there was A book in need of stories Instead of stories in need of books or something It just wasn't great. Ah, uh, Damien continues. As I look even more Irish than I am, I grew up with some odd experiences. As a teenager, I would be, quote, randomly searched for weapons whenever I went into London. And there was a very weird week when an ex-pupil of my school was killed trying to get a, to set a bomb for the IRA, and we got chased at the school gates by reporters wanting to know if we were all being taught to be terrorists. Of course, later in life, I discovered my granddad had smuggled weapons for the IRA. Apparently, the fighters would give schoolchildren guns to take over the border in return for sweeties, or candy, as the armies didn't search kids. Apparently, Granddad did it, as he had a very sweet tooth. He ended up dying of type 2 diabetes, so we can probably claim that he was a victim of the Irish War of Independence. And that is very dark, but, uh... Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very dark, but, uh... That's some black comedy right there. Um... Damien wraps up. Uh, Do you know when your Irish ancestors left Ireland? We discovered recently that all Irish censuses up to 1911 are available for free online, so it's really easy to investigate even with just a name. My mom was particularly happy to see my granddad listed as a scholar, which is the only occupation they can give you when you're five years old. Um, I don't know when my family left, actually. Uh, I'm guessing it had to have been five or six generations ago. Um... I think even like my great greats were born here, so it's uh, a that, that's something that's worth uh, worth checking into for sure to see exactly uh, which part I'm from and uh, if I should be if I should feel guilty about which part I'm from. I, I don't know which is which, so we'll, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for your comments, Damien. That's a that's a heck of a story, um, and it is weird. I mean, that was a way of. Life, you know, for a lot of people that, w- that was life, real life And all I knew was uh, that it delayed A Web of Spider-Man story So, yeah, it's very, very strange uh, We will wrap up with a letter from Al Sedano And he's talking about Powers of X number 5 He says, another day, another episode down And we're almost done with Hoxpox." It looks like this issue is here to fill, us, to fill a lot of behind-the-scenes info On how Xavier was able to get everything off the ground and he talks about, uh, the Forge scene here, because, uh, Professor X was asking, or he tasked Forge with creating the Cerebro cradles and whatnot. And he says, uh, there are two ways to look at the Forge scene. Either it takes place during the time where he was an active member of the team, or it's after and he's desperate to rejoin. That's the only reason I can think of for why he's still wearing his X-Men uniform. I hope it's the first option, because the second makes him seem a bit pathetic. Well, I hope it's the first as well. But, uh... After seeing how chuckle-headed he acts in the pages of X-Force... Who could say? <laughs> who knows? Um, Al continues, I think I'm a bit distrustful of Xavier, too. As soon as I read that he had downloaded a previous version of himself, I wondered if it was so he could he would not be able to remember something he'd done. If he can't remember it, then there's no, ch- then no chance of anyone else finding out. Maybe something to do with Mora. And yeah, Xavier's more than a little bit shifty in these Hox Pox issues here. Um, I still, even you know, five issues into each book here, I still feel a bit uncomfortable every time he's on panel. There really is this air of distrust around him, but uh, I'm guessing that's probably by design. Um, because, you know, I think we're supposed to be guessing, right? Um... Back to Alley says giving Shaw a seat was a bad idea. It's not that he's an evil mutant, but that he's an evil mutant who made Sentinels, and that's a really good point. Um, but I mean, the, this whole the whole premise of Krakoa here is is that Krakoa is for every mutant, right? So I'm guessing maybe they're using an extreme example in order to drive that point home that all mutants will find a home, you know, on Krakoa and uh, no matter what they did previously, this is like a—I don't know. Maybe this is just like a penance to uh, to move forward and uh, and let go of the past, I guess. Or maybe they're just keeping him where they can keep an eye on him. It seems—it uh, seems like it seems like a mutual exploitative relationship between Shaw and uh, and the rest of the folks. You know, they they want him for a certain gig, and he's only playing along because he's got his own plans that he wants to enact. So. That's, you know, that's that. Uh, Alf continues, Not sure if Gorgon was in the Wolverine series, but I know him from the Secret Warrior series, which was also written by Hickman. Speaking of other Hickman series, do you think you'd be able to go back and read his Avengers slash new Avengers run now and have a better chance of enjoying it? Since you know that Marvel isn't going to do a New 52-style reboot. What we got out of Secret Wars seemed to be more of a Zero Hour or Infinite Crisis minor reboot. And I tell you... If I had an extra few hours a day, I would love to sit down with both of the Hickman runs that I'd, you know, knee-jerk hated <laughs> as they were coming out. Uh, those, of course, being Fantastic Four and The Avengers. Because I was just so wrapped up in, in paranoia that everything that I'd invested in and loved and cared about was about to be flushed down the toilet Flashpoint style. I, I really just wish I had the time to read them so many years removed because... uh so I'm sure I would have a better appreciation for them um, You know We know what came out the other end You know, we know We know that it wasn't quite as Bad as a as a New 52 Style reboot and uh, And really that was my That was my lone complaint It just seemed like, it almost seemed like those two Runs were like low-key Trolling us, you know, it's like I feel like we kept hearing about Things getting reborn and restarted And rebooted and I mean, Marvel's creative team—they were smart to kind of foment that fear, um, because it it kept it kept things you know in the headlines. It kept uh, kept you know the folks at CBR and Newsarama to to keep asking those questions and keep them in the spotlight. So I was a bit worried um, seeing you know Franklin Richards before like a, a, a star plane, you know, talking about rebirths and stuff. And also that, that Avengers, new Avengers run. I mean, we had nearly a year's worth of banners on the top of those books, counting down to the end. You know, and we had all those like side books, like like Silver Surfer and Magneto, and uh, oh boy, what were some of those other books that were in that uh, that realm there? I think there's Ms. Marvel was there. It's like the last days of, and so we were. I I was fully, you know, I figured that we were, you know, we were starting over. That something big was going to happen and we were going to start over Um Gotta say I wasn't totally Keen on Secret Wars I didn't like The gimmick I didn't like Canceling everything and just doing like Weird mini series for the better part Of a uh, you know half year or so Or even longer Um wasn't you know Didn't dig that so much uh Not sure that I'd read that again But yeah given the chance I think I think sitting down with that Fantastic Four run and uh uh, I know I I enjoyed the new Avengers run. I liked that because it had Namor in it and Namor was really badass in that run. Um the regular Avengers run felt very very repetitive to me. I felt like every single issue had a scene where Tony and and Captain America were standing there saying, "We need to be bigger." It's like <laughs> can we can we just stop? Especially when bigger just meant like let's get some more, you know, generic antler-headed aliens to join the team. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm sure I'm missing something. I I didn't pay nearly as much attention as I should have. Um, Al wraps up with I had heard about the origin that Claremont had for Mr. Sinister, too. He did a panel at Wizard World Philly over a decade ago. The kid's name was Nathan, and Sinister wasn't supposed to be his only creation. Gambit was supposed to be his version of a cool guy. I wonder if that would have been better than all the thieves guild stuff we we got to deal with over the years. And I do remember that. I remember hearing that Gambit was like the other character that Kid Sinister dreamt up. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, that that's. I mean, those X mysteries and the aborted plot lines, threads on Usenet would just get my wheels spinning into overdrive. I loved those stories. I loved hearing about the what could have been's and. Uh, and I mean, you think about it. And you think about you know what, what has Gambit done since he first appeared here? I think, I think I prefer Gambit the way he is rather than uh, the manifestation from you know some kid's mind. But, I mean, you can't deny that Gambit, his creation, his uh, his look, his swagger, his uh, his whole character, feels very much like a boilerplate cool guy you know uh, motif, right? It's he is. The grim gritty 90's comic character You know for a lot of people So if that was to be revealed That he was just a manifestation Of what a kid thought was cool It'd make total sense Um, But I I like Gambit the way he is here Um, Though your point is well taken About the slog that is the Thieves Guild Ugh I mean You want to get me to check out on a book Put Belladonna in it (laughs) Put Belladonna in it. Have Belladonna join the, the Shi'ar Imperial Guard or something, and and I, I will run away from comics just as quick as possible. But I think that is where we'll leave it today. Thank you so much for writing in, Al. And uh, you've only got, what, two issues to go before you're done with uh, Hox Pox. I'm really looking forward to seeing your uh, your final thoughts on the big event. So definitely looking forward to that. Now, if anybody would like to reach out, uh, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter and Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can find show notes and stuff at Chris is on dot com. There's also Xlapsed Nineties X Men on Facebook, and the audio archives are at Chris dot Podbean Just one more big gushy thank you to everyone for listening And for reaching out and for keeping me sane Even in the insane world of Fallen Angels (laughs) I very much appreciate it Uh, Next time out, it's going to be X-Men number 5 Which, uh, it has a a return of one of our Hoxpox artists In R.B. Silva So looking forward to seeing that Um, I'm guessing he will be much better suited than uh, Mr. Lionel Francis U for that book. So we'll see. We'll see how, how it goes here. And uh, until next time, uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 45 of X-Lapsed, where we are finally, finally going to be wrapping up the Fallen Angels mini-series. I never thought we'd get here, and uh, I just might cry. I mean, I've been looking forward to this for many, many days now. So here we go. We're going to actually wrap this sucker up here. This is, of course, Fallen Angels Volume 2, Number 6, had a March 2020 cover date. Fittingly, it's called Conclusion. Written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Gudransky. Colors Frank Di Armada, led Letters VC's Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobulski. Cover price $3.99 American. Went on sale January 29th, 2020. We open with our roll call. And it's, you know, Psylocke, Quanon, Revenge, whatever we're calling her. Cable, Husk, Bling, X23, and Mr. Sinister. Then we get two pages of people claiming credit to, you know, creating this thing. Uh, So we get into the comics content here, and uh, just three panels into page one, and we already get our regular reminder that, get this, Betsy Braddock once inhabited QAnon's body. I think that might be a record, though. I could be mistaken. Now, this is overlaid with some expectedly purple narration, during which Psylocke tells us how she destroys everything that she loves and uh, she must love the hell out of this comic book, then. Now, while our gal is zoned out, huffing her own insecurities, we see the rest of the angels running toward something. Psylocke gives X-23 some orders and uh, reminds us that she's still a caterpillar. Uh, then she go—we go into like this full-on Final Fantasy cutscene mode here, like like for real. Like Betsy's running, and I I can almost hear like the orchestra and the chanting. I swear, looking at this scene, I'm hearing, like, the amped-up bits from Final Fantasy VIII's opening cutscene where, like, Squall and Cipher, or Seifer or whatever, however you say his name, are, are dueling. Is that a good thing? I don't know. <laughs> it's a—it's distracting me from this comic we're supposed to be discussing, so I guess we could put a check in the wind column, right? Now, Psylocke runs across some wreckage. Of course, we're in Dubai. It leaps into the air, sprouts psionic butterfly wings, and then ascends toward the top of a nearby skyscraper. <sighs> Meanwhile, back on the ground, the rest of the angels are being descended upon by some Apotheans Well, I'm, I'm assuming they're Apotheans, uh, we don't get all that good a look at them Cable tosses a phosphorus bomb or something at them, which causes them to fall back a bit X-23 asks how much crazy Cable brought with them, to which he replies, plenty Not sure that's going to matter all that much, but great Back to Psylocke, who is still ascending Now, atop the tower, she runs into the hefty bag phantom, and uh, I suppose we could probably just guess that this is the real deal Apoth, maybe. Who cares? They talk for a bit before Psylocke places one of them Apothian dome doohickeys on her own head, you know. Uh, She's suddenly surrounded by digital imagery, so maybe she's fighting the big bad bag on on his home turf? Maybe? I don't know. Down on the ground, the angels discuss whether or not they ought to help Psylocke. Before they can, however, an apothean psychopath rushes at them. Uh, Just when we start thinking there might be some action, Cable just shoots him in the head. There you go. When questioned by X-23 as to why he did this, Cable asserts that this fellow was, quote, already dead. So I guess this is just another way to justify sidestepping that pesky little kill-no-man edict, huh? Unless, of course, the Fallen Angels, just like the rest of the X-Teams, are, quote, officially exempt from following that law. Anyway, back to Psylocke, cause we gotta. Apoth is trying to cut a deal. He wants his, quote, mother to sit at his side and whatnot. Psylocke blocks him out and manifests a psionic shield. Apoth blasts at her, but she deflects it. Then Apoth decides to change form. First he changes to Quanon's teacher, who we've seen throughout flashbacks. Then to Quanon's lover, who I don't know if we saw during flashbacks, but he announces himself as the lover, so there you go. And then finally, to Quan'an's child. From here, we jump back to the ground, and we get some very awkwardly drawn scene of uh, the angels rescuing some children. At least, I think that's what they're doing. It's not even like it matters. I, you know, I don't even know why we bothered adding husk and bling last issue, because none of these characters matter here. It's, it could have been any any number of different characters. Back to Psylocke. Now, path in the form of Quan'an's daughter... Begs her mother not to kill her, but eh, she runs her psychic blade through her anyway, and that's it. Like, really. We spent the last hundred-plus pages building to this confrontation, and just like that, it's over. This is a big bad who was built up as a god, and it's over. Quanan is then visited by that bald-headed entity from a couple issues back. and we learn that this is like the adversary of a path, or the opposite, so I guess like the good half of like if one, it's, this is like Jacob and that other guy from Lost or something. I don't know. Quinan asks why the bad guy the bald guy didn't stop a path, And and oh, ho but he did because you see, he sent Quanan to do it for herself. We go back to Kokoa. Psylocke and X23 share a moment. Gwinnon frees Laura from her fallen angel's commitments. She says that Laura's a leader, despite not really showing that during this mission, or anywhere in the series. Unless there was like a whole bunch of managerial mastery happening off-panel, which we didn't see. Couldn't say. Now, Psylocke hopes that she can call Laura a friend, and they embrace Then we follow Psylocke to bar Sinister, where she hands over the mechanical doohickey that apparently Apoth still somehow dwells in. Now, she suggests Sinister destroy it, but he says, hey, how about we pretend I did instead. They agree to work together again in the future so long as it's a mutually beneficial endeavor, which, I mean, let's hope they don't. Uh, We wrap up the issue and the series with Psylocke watching the sunset, or maybe the sunrise, I don't know what time it is, uh, whatever the case, she now knows that she can do some good in this world. We close out this mini series with a poem that I am not going to read. Next episode, we're going back to the farm, so I know at least one person out there is going to be happy about that. But uh, yeah, how about we wrap this? Uh, we wrap this issue up here. We wrap this uh, Fallen Angel series up with some thoughts. It's done. I-, I could just go to the end theme right now, but no, no, we'll we'll talk about it some more. I feel like a great big purple butterfly-shaped weight has been lifted off our collective shoulders. And I don't think I've been this happy to be done with a comic since I was reviewing, like, new DC comics, and I agreed to cover the 12-issue Raven Daughter of Darkness maxi-series that came out... Oh, Lord, uh, 2018, 2019, I believe. And, uh... It was awful. (laughs) It was really, really bad. And, you know... It's actually not too different from this Fallen Angels mini. They were both written by well-regarded writers. That Raven was by uh, Marv Wolfman, you know, and this is Brian Hill. They both had laughably forced depth. Like, really, really forced depth. And in Raven, we couldn't go a page or two without being reminded that Raven is the daughter of Trigon the Terrible. So it's like, we kept getting this repetition in both series, and... uh, we bloated something that didn't need to, didn't need near as many pages into something that uh, just barely fit with all the repetition. So let's talk about this final chapter, this issue. I mean, no matter what happened here, it was going to be a letdown, right? So much repetitive build in those first five issues. I mean, what could have happened here that wouldn't have been eye-rollingly disappointing? Quanon confronts a path and runs it through with her psychic blade, we really needed 120-plus issue pages for that? This, this is a story that didn't need six issues to be told, and I'm not convinced it needed six pages. I mean, you cut out the repetition, the purple prose, the unnecessary info pages, and the pointless recruitment of Husk and Bling, and you might have what? A four-page backup in a Dawn of X-Flavoured X-Force or X-Caliber annual? I mean, I'd only suggest Excalibur because, uh... Did you know Betsy Braddock once inhabited QAnon's body? That's a piece of obscure trivia for you. You might want to write it down. Let's let's talk about some good. Let's talk about good bits of Fallen Angels. I like the idea that this Apoth character kind of focused on Cable as being this man and machine in perfect harmony. It plays a bit into the concept of the post-human which I believe, as it was described in Hoxpox, was the leap from human over mutant to their next, and for lack of a better term, evolution. Now this might be the first time we see an actual mutant as a link in that evolutionary chain, and uh, I'll admit, that's kind of intriguing. Unless, of course, I'm reading way too much into it, which is absolutely possible, because I am looking for anything here. I do like the way Mister Sinister was handled uh, here in this series. Uh, this wasn't silly, sassy Sinister, but the you know creepy sort of means to an end, obsessive collector and researcher type. You know, this is this is the Sinister I remember, and it was nice seeing him here, even if he was you know stuck sharing scenes with a scenery-eating Psylocke. Uh, the art mostly worked, outside of whatever the hell was going on during that scene where X-23 was maybe rescuing children. Uh, the characters there look like oddly placed color forms, which, not a good look. So those were things I liked. <laughs> I, I, to go into things I didn't would be, just like Fallen Angels itself, largely repetitive. But let's do it anyway. Um, Quan'an is not a character who can carry a miniseries, or God forbid an ongoing. She's Not only is she not interesting in the slightest, she's aggressively unpleasant. Her sole character trait is that someone marginally more interesting than her once inhabited her body. That, and the fact that she digs butterflies, do not a story make. Uh, X-23, I think she was handled decently here, but in a pretty forced sort of way. Her character sort of needed to be, like, complementary to Quinons, which is all well and good, but I feel like she quickly became pigeonholed into the role of, like, just giving a slightly different point of view than our lead character. While also delivering copious amounts of exposition when Quinlan couldn't be bothered, Cable, outside of his brief and baffling abduction, was a non-entity here. Uh, did did we ever find out how he got away from the Hefty Bag Phantom? And, and while on the subject, let's let's talk the design of a path here. Not great, not great. <laughs> really, really. Uh. It's you know we've talked about how this um this whole uh, arc, this whole miniseries, feels like. Something out of, like, a 1995 image book. And the Hefty Bag Phantom here, our, our big bad Apoth, you could tell me that he first appeared in Dark Minds number no. 3 or something from a an image, and I'd believe it. <laughs> you know, it's very, very dated design and uh, pretty uninspired. Uh, Husk and Bling. Why did we even bothering, bother adding them to the team? They did nothing but stand around. Unless, and it gives me a cold chill to even put this out into the universe, unless this miniseries was a sort of, like, pilot or a pitch for an ongoing featuring this ensemble cast?
2: Eh.
1: Or maybe we'll see some more from them when the cable ongoing series starts up? I hope not, but uh, really and truly I was hoping to not get a cable ongoing series to begin with. You know, I knew we'd eventually get a Wolverine, because of course we're going to get a Wolverine, but... I was hoping they'd skip Cable, but they didn't. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you who's writing Cable. It might be Brian Hill, for all I know, but uh, I just hope it's not a continuation of this. Uh, let's, uh, let's cut away from the creative and talk about a little bit of the uh, behind-the-scenes here. Let's check out the sales for this series, according to the folks at Comicron. Which is something I'm surprised I haven't done already to this point. So we're going to go through these six issues and talk about uh, how well they sold. Now, Fallen Angels number one sold eighty-six thousand six hundred and seventy-two copies, which is pretty amazing. I would have, I would have lost money on that bet. I would have never, never imagined it got that close to a hundred thousand copies. Uh, Fallen Angels number two sold 46,859 copies, which is a fairly standard first to second issue attrition. Uh, it is worth noting, New Mutants number one was the top selling book of November 2019, which is pretty weird. Uh, Fallen Angels number three sold 38,883 copies, issue four sold 37,350 copies. The penultimate fifth issue sold 39,719 copies, and the issue we just discussed sold 39,912 copies. And uh, let me tell you, those are some unexpectedly decent numbers. And I guess that might say a lot for the strength of the Dawn of X brand, but the fact that all six issues were twice monthly probably didn't hurt. As I know, I had to have my DCBS pre-order for issues five and six in before number one even got delivered to my house. So I'm guessing that retailers were in the very same boat, and uh, quality uh, or reader reception was a non-factor in this uh, in these orders. I have a sneaking suspicion that if this were just a monthly book for six issues, uh, sales on the latter three issues probably would have dipped to below 20000 That seems to be the the way these things go. Overall, yeah, like I said, and I'll say again, Fallen Angels was definitely not for me. If you dug this, hey, more power to you. If not, well, at least we never have to cover another issue of it again. Knock on wood. So that's Fallen Angels. The issue, the series, all of it in the shell of a nut. But before we go, I do have a... A sort of extra-sized mailbag to attend to, so let's get right into that. We're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about X-Men number 5. He says, Following this book, along with X-Lapsed, really changes it because you become aware of where it sits with the other books. In retrospect, the continuity of this issue is a real mess. I'm reading along with you, so I haven't read Fallen Angels number 6 yet, but clearly, Laura just resets back to where she was before the series. And yeah, this is uh, something that uh, that we talked about during the X-Men number 5 issue here Laura is just back to being, you know, a uh, little Wolverine And uh, by now, you know how Fallen Angels shook out And uh, I'm going to reach here, but the only bit of credit I can give them is uh, You know, at the end, Psylocke suggested that X-23 can be a leader and in X-Men number 5, she's sort of the de facto leader of her little vault infiltration squad with uh, Darwin and Sync. Eh? <laughs> I honestly doubt that's anything more than a convenient coincidence, rather than a decision that was made going in. That's just, you have characters like Sync, Darwin, and X-23, who are they going to put in charge of that? Of course it's going to be Laura. I am not sure why she's no longer worried about being in Wolverine's Shadow. Unless at some point between Fallen Angels number one and X Men number five, Marvel started putting designs on relaunching her all-new Wolverine series, and you know the way they're bloating this Dawn of X line, it wouldn't surprise me. Heck, it would probably surprise me if they didn't try it at this point. There are a lot of books coming out of this series uh, going into 2021. Uh, back to Damien. he says, as you say, it was a it was a treat to see R B Silva and Marty Gracia back on the art. This issue looks amazing, but I have to admit that I have no idea what's going on. This feels like one of those stories where Hickman is leaning too hard into the sci-fi and losing clarity. And yeah, it's a great-looking issue. And yeah, in many ways, it's baffling. Um, I might be projecting here, but I feel like this is the sort of issue that people dig their heels in and say they loved, because this is the kind of story many of us expect from Hickman. And as Hickman fans, we gotta, I don't know, like protect the brand, so to speak. But at the end of the day, like, what in the hell happened here? You know, it's kind of all over the place. And don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting anyone who did like this. But I, you know, I, I admittedly come from a bit of a hive mind myself. Uh, I'm a really big Grant Morrison fan, who likes story that stories that feel like Grant Morrison stories, who, for a time, was quick to discount anyone who dared say they didn't like a Grant Morrison story as someone who just doesn't get Grant Morrison stories. Does that make any sense? Or did I just say Grant Morrison a half dozen times for no reason? Uh, I'm taking the uh, scenic route here, simply to say, yeah, I wasn't too big a fan of this, but I can see why people were, and I can also completely understand why some of those people might discount my opinion entirely as, you know, just not getting it. You know? I think that's... I don't want to say that the creator has a cult of personality around him, but uh, a lot of writers do. A lot of writers do. And, uh... Is this a case of that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Damien continues. I'm excited for the next couple of issues. X-Men 6 and 7 are both fascinating issues that have a lot to dig into. And the next episode is Marauders number 6, which really ramps up that storyline. And I'm glad to hear that about the the X-Men issues. I've been waiting a long time to be wowed by the the book I consider to be the flagship. Um, I, and I'm, I'm guessing many people, Figure that X-Men will be the flagship of the X-Men line. Um, now we've already looked at the Fantastic Marauders number six, which I truly believe to be one of the strongest issues we've looked at yet. Um, it's right up there with the best of Hoxpox, you know, as being, you know, an issue that uh, that I would mm-hmm. that I would revisit. Where so many of these are just like, okay, get it done, put it in the box, <laughs> get past it. Uh, File whatever is needed in the the back of the brain somewhere and move on But uh, Marauders number 6 was really, really good Damien wraps up with As for the issue 5s, my top place is still Marauders, followed by New Mutants Next, it's X-Men primarily for the art Then X-Force and Excalibur with Fallen Angels at the bottom It's not a smooth curve, though, as the top 3 are quite considerably ahead of the bottom 3 And at the bottom, Excalibur is way ahead of Fallen Angels I genuinely wonder how it got published I imagine there's some sort of story behind the scenes about this. You usually only get something this bad when editorial and the creative team are working (laughs) against each other and the book is getting rewritten. And yeah, I mean, we just wrapped up Fallen Angels a couple minutes ago and it is still baffling, isn't it? I think that, you know, if Fallen Angels was published by DC Comics, I feel like this would be a six-issue miniseries that got put, quote, on hiatus after the second It really just doesn't fit the rest of the line. It's not anywhere near the level of quality that we'd come to expect. And I mean, some of these books are very middling, but Fallen Angels stands below even that. You know, we've had some bad issues of X-Force, we've had some bad issues of Excalibur, but Fallen Angels has been consistently, bafflingly bad. (laughs) But uh, that's... That's Damien's letter here. Thank you so much for writing in. Now, uh, we're going to get to Al Sedano, who wrapped up Hox Pox here, and one of the other letters also did as well that we'll get to in a little bit. Al, I'm talking about Powers of X number 6, he says, Well, here we are at the end of Hox Pox. I'm going to miss doing my reading from this hardcover. I think you're right. Marvel should make this one of their evergreen trades, at least as long as this version of the X-Men is being published. And I truly believe it will be one of those books that Marvel continues to push hard uh, I, I would say even after this era passes kind of like uh, you know like E is for extinction the first uh, grant Morrison new X-Men run uh, that that's that's close to being evergreen you know uh, that's something that I see getting reprinted every now and again and people still talk about it and, and hold it in high regard so I think I think uh, House of X powers of X will be something similar to that uh, Al continues okay let's get into it so, the mutants are screwed. Humans hate them for being their replacements, and the post humans hate them because they worry that the mutants are going to try and stop them from replacing the mutants. Damned either way. And yeah, we're being dropped into some perilous waters at the end of Hoxpox, that, that much is for sure. Which, uh, I mean, looking at it that way, it, when I was in the same spot as Al, having just read Hoxpox, had not touched, uh, you know, Dawn of X, a lot of people were warning me. About how uh, promises aren't delivered on, you know, um, and a lot of the folks I spoke with were kind of disappointed or at least underwhelmed with how the dawn of Xbox may have failed to grab that baton and run with it. So I mean, we have this really good setup. We're, we're dropped. We're dropped in a minefield, right? Where there's just so many possibilities and uh, so many promises and expectations and. I mean, we get books like Fallen Angels. We get books where we're fighting in in Camelot. We, you know, we get uh, cliffhanger deaths every issue, which seemingly, you know, to me, misses the point of this entire era. It's a. Uh, I'm going to be interested in hearing some of your your Dawn of X thoughts when you uh, when you start reading the uh, your anthology trades. I'm looking forward to hearing hearing your feelings on that. And also listening to the program and seeing uh, seeing how close we are on, uh, on these thoughts. Uh, back to Al. Uh, the Mora journal pages. I'm trying to figure out when they take place, too. With the mentions of losing Magneto and Apocalypse showing up, could it be late 80s our time? Mags did become evil again after Inferno, and Apocalypse did show up a few years before that. And yeah, this is a bit where I admittedly kind of lost the plot in my analysis. Um... I've been, I don't want to say taken to task But I've had people raise this point to me um, A few times Uh, And I I haven't re-listened to it But I do remember how I was feeling When I was reading these uh, journal pages And I I feel like that's definitely where I kind of My analysis kind of went askew Um, I was taking these pages here And I mean there's only like three or four pages I think I was taking them as being like an exhaustive look at X-History and that's very much likely fueled by my own paranoia that we were about to have, like, our entire continuity wiped away. Or inconvenient bits of the continuity wiped away. I viewed these pages as being, like, the complete history. So I discounted a lot of the obvious, obvious hints and illusions, right? Because I wanted, you know, I wanted the uh, the whole, you know, explain it to me in, like I'm a five-year-old sort of a situation there. And uh, that's not what we got. But I uh, that's kind of the prism I viewed it through. Right now, Magneto turned bad again. Uh, that that that's being discussed here. That's probably from the first three issues of X Men Volume Two, so probably 1991. Um, and this is when Moro was revealed as having altered him during his time as a baby. After he was reverted to baby form in that Bronze Age Defender story, that's something we just recently discussed, or not recently, but in the latest episode of uh, From Claremont to Claremont, we talk all about that. Uh, me and Jody uh, Yarden. Uh, Al continues. They don't want precogs on Krakoa, so then Franklin Richards is out. Will this be explained in the Fantastic Four X-Men mini? And I am very much looking forward to finding out. When I started this little project, people were really hyped about, um, you know, getting the X of Tens, right? Where I've been most intrigued by this X-Men plus Fantastic Four story. Even from, like, the opening pages of House of X number one, where the Fantastic Four, uh, you know, they caught Sabretooth, and then we had that really tense scene with uh, Reed and Cyclops, and uh, a really weird and passive aggressive almost discussion. I was. That just totally captured my imagination, and I, I couldn't wait to see how that played out here. I love the idea of the mutants kind of like staking their claim on Franklin, and it's a. Uh, It's actually been something I've been looking forward to for, like, much of my ex-fandom, ever since I found out that Franklin was a mutant. That's, you know, that seemed like a no-brainer to me. You know, but then, you know, back in the day I was also waiting for, like, Namor and the Scarlet Witch to join up, but, uh, well, I guess one out of two ain't bad. Now, since I haven't heard a whole lot about that mini since it's come out, I'm I'm bracing for it to be, like, an underwhelming, sort of, non-happening. But I still have my fingers crossed, and uh, we will be kicking that four-part series off in two episodes' time. Two episodes from now, and then we're going to run it all the way to the uh, milestone 50th episode of X-Labs. So 47, 48, 49, and 50 will be X-Men plus Fantastic Four. Uh, Back to Al. He says, I want to know what Apocalypse is thinking while everyone else is having a huge party and they are doing a moderately good job of, with apocalypse and excalibur um now for several of these opening issues he's he's like the lone high point so it's a uh, i'm very much looking forward to seeing how everything apocalypse kind of plays out he's been he's been handled very very well uh, al goes back and he says uh While I do like the X to the third power stuff more than you, it's kind of confusing. I promise the Legion is not normally like this, and I'm very happy to hear that. Because these, uh, these X-Men Year 1000 bits were, yeah, they were out there. Al continues, I understand your concern about them killing Mora to change things again, but since she only had one life left, maybe, I think they're going to hold that from when Hickman leaves and Marvel decides that they're done with this. And yeah, I'm guessing that uh, killing Mora is like their back door to whatever you know will be coming next. Uh, but I'm hopeful that maybe there's a backdoor to the backdoor. I want to say that there was a hint that her mutant ability will only work until she's dead ten times. So perhaps like the inevitable death of Mora the Tenth won't actually set any dominoes in motion, right? Maybe she'll just pass and her mutant power won't kick in and that'll just be the end of her and we can move on from there. If I were to guess, or bet, I'd say Marvel probably doesn't know exactly where this is going to go just yet. Um, We're still in, like, Dawn of X bloat phase, so we're just trying to cram as many new books into the line as possible. When they inevitably start to drop off, then maybe we'll have a better idea of, uh, of whether or not there's going to be any sort of momentum in reverting things, changing things, or just, you know, starting a whole new... Whole new era. Maybe we'll get like another 12-part mini maxi series, and who knows? Uh, Al continues or Al, Al concludes with overall. I enjoyed these two minis. They have me interested in reading the Dawn of X books and seeing where we go from here. There are a lot of interesting ways they can go with this whole mutant society background. I'm just curious how well they'll fulfill the promise. And yeah, like I alluded to earlier, fulfilling the promise seems to be where most X fans I speak to are, you know, disappointed with Dawn of X. Uh, but by now, if you're if you're still listening along and you've gotten to episode 45, uh, you probably have a better idea of that. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, but thank you for writing in. I'm so happy that you uh, you stuck through for the opening uh, the opening maxi series or the the two mini series that are one. And uh, definitely, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on. Uh, on the big launch, so uh, if you uh, if you stick around, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. So thank you. Uh, next, we got two short pieces here. One from Chris Bailey, uh, my partner on More Tory Mondays and uh, plenty of other things. And this is talking about Dawn of X number fives. Not not you know not any particular issue of fives, but I did ask people to tell me what their lists were, you know. And he says I'm listening to X Lapsed X Men number five, and I just finished Fallen Angels number five. I have to say my least favorite of all the books is Excalibur. I just can't dig it, and that's saying something after listening to Fallen Angels. And yeah, you know, as much guff as I give Fallen Angels, I swear that I enjoy talking about it more than I do Excalibur. I mean, Fallen Angels is kind—it's of, like so up its own ass that it's kind of fun pointing out how precious it is. I don't want to say it's so bad it's good, because it certainly isn't, but it definitely, actually, you know, it gives me material to work with. You know, the biggest sin of Excalibur is more in the fact that it's boring. I struggle to find anything good or bad to say about it because it's like I finish reading an issue of it and I just go, "All right, well, that's something I read." You know, and that's as far as my my train of thought goes. Which I guess that might explain why why you guys get such biting analysis from me during an Excalibur discussion as. It was nice seeing Rogue and Gambit together, because there's really nothing else to say. It's just aggressively dull. <laughs> but thank you for writing in, buddy. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a piece from Evan Bevins, and he, like Al, just finished up Hox Pox, So this is Power of X number six. He says, Wrapping up episode 12, and I haven't del- delved into the Dawn of X stuff yet, but a couple of things I was thinking with the timing of Mora's journal. Maybe because of where I was when I read this and I was listening to From Claremont to Claremont, but I thought the part where they lost Magneto was when Mora's manipulation was revealed in X-Men Volume 2 number 2. And her faking her death, I thought that was when she die quote, died of the legacy virus, but I could be totally wrong. And no no, I think you're I think you're hundred percent right. Um as mentioned and probably will be mentioned again, my analysis kinda lost the plot during those journal pages. Um I was way too concerned with what we might be losing that I never once considered that we were actually instead adding to existing lore. I was just, I was like, had my claws, you know, gripping these past stories. I just didn't want them to go away. And didn't realize that uh, they were just lifting it up and putting something underneath it to prop it up a little bit, you know. Uh, Evan uh, wraps up with... And although it may not be clear, I think all the X-Men stories we know happened in the most recent life, even though clearly some events happened in the other lives as well. And yeah, there's definitely some overlap in the lives. And uh, after reading the first arcs of all these Dawn of X books, I'm much more comfortable with the idea that everything we know is happening since X-Men number one, way back in 63. Uh, that actually occurred in Mora's, you know, current and re- most recent in current life. So I'm definitely feeling... A lot more uh, assured in that um, I don't want to say fact, because who knows But uh, I'm pretty sure that everything that we've read From X-Men number one uh, till now is, is all part of Mora's tenth life So that's a, that's a good thing, if you ask me And uh, thank you so much for uh, following along and, and also sharing your thoughts there, Evan uh, Now if anybody else would like to uh, chime in And uh, let me know your thoughts uh, anywhere from, uh, you know, Hawks Pox number, Hox number one to I guess Fallen Angels number six. Uh, please feel free to write in. Uh, you can reach me at Weird Comics History at gmail.com. Uh, you can find show notes and stuff at Chris's on Infinite also xlapsed. on Infinite com. You can find the Facebook page at 90s X Men, and uh, the audio archives is at Chris and com. I'm hoping that uh, my little uh, Major x Lab stunt didn't scare too many people away. Uh, <laughs> that was one thing that I put together and uh, quickly found out that absolutely nobody wanted it. So uh, we'll see if we go back to that well. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But uh, till then, or actually till next time when we discuss uh, New Mutants number six, back on the farm. I will just say one huge thank you to everyone for hanging out and sharing your time with me. And uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.